Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Surprise! Did you miss me, Andy? I sure missed you. I told you. We were gonna be friends to the end. And now, it's time to play. I got a new game, sport. It's called... Hide the soul, and guess what? You're it. From the Playland Fire in Sweet Home Chicago to a coming of rage in Hack and Slash, New Jersey, we are Halloweenies. I'm Justin. Wanna play? That was The Most with Play It Cool off their album Mostified. Find it on their Bandcamp page and wherever albums are streamed and sold. It's about time we, every single season, every single episode, we always forget to credit, you know, just who did all these songs for us. Actually, they did <laughs> and, them years and, ago, and but we've used them. So, <laughs> yeah. And, we, and then we always forget the exact names. We have to reach out to, to Rothman. So, hey, we're already sidetracked. Listen, I'm one of your co-hosts, Justin Lee Gerber, and I am sitting here on Wabash and Van Buren enjoying some tasty Cantonese food over here at good old Jimmy Wong's. Look, if you need a better landmark, it's located right next to that store, Playland Toys. And if you're looking for some of those new good guy dolls, holy geez, wow. Do they have plenty in stock? And you know what that means? It's time to kick off season six of Halloweenies and talk about 1988's Child's Play. Nobody's ever pronounced it that way. Child's Play. That's right. We're going to be talking about Child's Play all year long. The original series, the remake, the ongoing TV series. This is the first time we've really done that. That'll be exciting. But before we do all that, let me head around... Beautiful dining table here at Jimmy Chong's, Jimmy Jimmy Wong's, excuse me. And I hope I, I hope I don't catch these fellow co-hosts with food in their mouth. Let me ask these other two co-hosts just who they are and when they remember first encountering Chucky. Let's start off with somebody who is allegedly Southside Chicago, at the very worst, south of Chicago. Who is that? Well, it certainly isn't uh, Stony Island. <laughs> Yikes. But this is Mike Norris Vanderbilt. And <laughs> the first time I saw Child's Play is when it came out home video in the spring of '89. And oh, so- my my parents rented it for us. Uh I want to say it was my, my birthday, so it might have been closer to June, but it was right around that time. And one of the reasons we watched, aside from that, we always watched horror movies on Friday night, and I, I love this stuff, was that my dad saw them filming part of this when he was working downtown. So then like he was kind of like fascinated with what this movie was. And I want to say it was one of the parts with uh, Mike Norris in the car. I believe that's what he saw him filming. It wasn't when the one person tries to attack Karen down in the, 
down my, on the my, really bad side. My, of town. my my dad was not a peddler. <laughs> okay, well, we want to make that clear here. <laughs> That's the unique thing about this series is that, especially this first movie. I mean, it, it a lot of this was shot in our neighborhoods. Really, I mean, it, especially in the downtown Chicago area where Mac and I work, and we frequent a lot of these places, which is mm-hmm. which is bizarre to see. Every time I watch it. I don't understand why it was shot in Chicago. Well, I, I, hey, like that's no, a good point. There is no real reason for it not to be shot in L.A., right? Or New well, York I think or anywhere. The, I think that the chilly atmosphere does lend something to it. Absolutely. And you know what's funny? I was watching this, Vanderbilt, and I was thinking about how you think, how you say that a lot of these winter movies are always like these pristine, clean, snow-driven films that look extremely fake. But this one really does have the feel of gross winter Chicago. You know? <laughs> this is up there with Running Scared. And uh, it was shot. I mean, I don't know if we'll talk about this, but it was shot during. And I don't remember this. I, I probably would have just been a little too young to even care about it. But it's one of the worst Chicago winters on record. They had said it was, we, surprisingly enough, we've actually had worse winters since. But it was the worst Chicago winter, I believe, in 40 years when they made this movie. But I was you know looking at some of the temperatures, and I thought oh, it was actually worse than that two weeks ago here. Well, sure, <laughs> you know? yeah. But you know who we have to thank for Child's Play being shot here mostly oh, is Mayor Jane Byrne. Oh, I did not know that part of the oh, research, uh, uh, so there we go. Re- uh, real quick, I guess. We'll put it in here. Uh, Mayor Daly hated movies. The original Mayor Daly hated movies. Mm. Didn't want him shooting here. Didn't like that they messed up traffic. Didn't like that every movie shot in Chicago had to make mention of Al Capone and... It was actually two people, I guess, because it was also John Belushi and, I guess, Jan- John Landis as well. Landis wanted to shoot here. He sent Belushi in with his Chicago roots to go talk to Jane Byrne. And the story goes, he sat there just sweaty and pitching at her in the office. And she just goes, fine. And that kind of kicked off a whole era of Chicago filmmaking. That would have been for the Blues Brothers, right? Back for the Blues in Brothers 19, in 1980, absolutely. It's funny, because at first I thought you were saying that it was because of John Landis and John Belushi that this movie got made. And then the timeline was really messed up. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. The ghost of Belushi is like, he must do Child's Play. But there was Tom very Holland little filming it. in Chicago until the 80s. In fact, a lot of people joked that the fourth Chicago star stands for the filming of the Blues Brothers. I love it. I love it. Well, listen, I mean, that movie was filmed all over Chicago. That's right. Now, we do have another co-host in this episode. And we, we simply must know. I might even have the answer for this one, honestly. Where, uh, this next co-host, where did you first encounter Chucky? What was it? Well, this is Wolfman Mac Death, um, as in uh, Dr. Wolfman uh, Death. I, I love that <laughs> Dr. Death's name is John. Does it actually be Dr. John Death? And obviously that's not really his name, probably. But just slow. I just kind of like that. John Death. Uh, but no, this is Wolfman Mac. Uh, the first time I saw this film, I was really trying to rack my brain, and it's probably really different from every single other horror film that I ever watched uh, growing up. No, I'm kidding. It's probably, I probably watched this on, it's probably like a USA, <laughs> Up All Night, Triple Feature, Child's Play 1, one and 2, or 1 and 2 and 3. That's all that had come out when we started watching these films. Is that, is that right, Justin? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, because that's Bride right. came out, but we had already seen these by then. That we were—that's why we were excited about it. But uh, yeah, I probably watched these heavily edited. I'm going to go ahead and say we probably watched them post having seen Fright Night because I remember knowing who Chris Randon was when we watched the first film. So I'm going to make that assumption. 
I don't know if this is the first thing I had seen Brad Dourif in, or if I had seen um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at that time, because we were watching a lot of film. And well, I think at one point we were working our way through the AFI uh, Top 100 uh, when we when I first started getting into the movies with you. And I have to imagine we had seen that randomly, because that's like up there in the top... Is that in the top ten of that? No, it's it's in the list, but I don't think that that didn't come out till like ninety four, ninety five. The AFI one hundred that aired on television mm. that had the hundred greatest, I think, American films of all time is what it was. Very popular at the time. But I honestly, I can't remember when we first started watching these. You know what I mean? Like, well, I mean, I definitely it was watched, in the nineties. Yeah, well, I mean, we watched. Well, you this, might have seen it before me, but that's possible. I mean, also I, I, a few old years older than me. So I recall I watching these again. It was probably like a Fox affiliate in Orlando. When I would watch the first one, it was on in the afternoon. We would tape it, rush to get the VCR ready and, and tape these so we can keep them forever. Uh, now you can just click a couple of buttons on your laptop and you're good to go. But we didn't know at the time. We were very innocent. But the story I want to share is I vividly remember going to see a movie in theaters in 1988. And before movies would start, you know, and still to this day, they'll have stills from upcoming movies or stills from whatever movies are being advertised. And I'll never forget, I don't remember what the movie was, but it was not some, you know, adult film. God, that sounded really bad. It was not some R-rated movie <laughs> or some heavy drama. It was probably just a family film. But before it started, there was a still of the scene when Karen takes Andy to school right before he, he's, he leaves school and they blow up Charles E. Ray's partner's house. And he's got Chucky by the arm. I remember just seeing that still and feeling like, oh, my God. And even that scared me. And it said, you know, Child's Play, directed by so-and-so, is coming this whatever. And it wasn't even a scary image. It was just, you know, him going to school. But that image of Chucky alone felt like I shouldn't be looking at it. It was one of those situations. And, God, I, I never forgot it. And that was, what, 34 years ago. So I've always been kind of fascinated by this by this character. And over the years, I've really developed a strong fondness for it. I'll tell you, and we'll talk about this when we talk about Child's Play 3, but I mean, that that movie almost killed the franchise in a lot of ways. It disappeared for a number of years relative to the quick release for 2 and 3. But over the years, specifically, because a lot of it is due to the series that's going on right now in USA, but even some of the recent VOD, direct-to-VOD movies, which I felt were the true death knell and have been the death knell of... Series like, you know, Hellraiser, for instance. I thought that was a wrap on Chucky, but I was uh, proven r- pleasantly wrong. And I'm looking forward to talking about all those future episodes, as well as future movies, on those future episodes <laughs> in the future. But, I mean, look, let's get down to it. We got a, we got some news to discuss, including some breaking news. This might be the most breaking news that we've ever had during a recording of one of these episodes. And it's uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Well, I'll tell you what we have to do to find this news is we got to do a little trek through the woods, follow the path, find a smallish cabin, knock on the door, hopefully be let in, go to an office, go to the back wall, and there we'll find the return of Steve Christie's bulletin board. Hello? Who's that? Oh, Hi. Doing out in this mess. Okay, so news uh, bit number one here. This we found this out a couple days ago. 
is that the Chucky Haunted House is returning to Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios this fall. And this is a house that is specifically related to the, the, the USA sci-fi series. The ad literally said, USA sci-fi, Chucky, Haunted House, whatever it's going to be called. Now, the TV series has not been officially renewed as of yet. But, I mean, that's a pretty strong indicator that it would be. And it would make sense because I believe the last two seasons of Chucky came out around Halloween time. So... It'd be really weird if they just canceled the show, but said, oh, yeah, but come out and see the sponsor, USA Sci-Fi Haunted House anyway. So fingers crossed on that front. Mac, I know you've watched the first season, but Vanderbilt, have you seen any of this TV show yet? I have not. This will be a fresh look. This is good. Now you yeah. have to be on the episodes because you can watch them all for the first time fresh later Wonderful. on this year. There you go. <laughs> so you can look forward to that. It's, it's really fun, uh, Vanderbilt. I yeah. think you'll actually really dig it. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty nasty, uh, and I was pleasantly I'm not you know I'm Mr. Edgelord over here, but I was pleasantly surprised where the now, series goes. I, I want to speak to this Universal Halloween Horror Nights mm. uh, Child's Play House, whatever <laughs> whatever it's going to be the Playland or whatever. I don't know if that bodes well or not because Universal doesn't have the greatest track record of. I mean, look at like their longest running show in california is still water world so, <laughs> you know what i mean like so I, in terms of like having their finger at like 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 the the mummy revenge of the mummy ride is still like a big and that that franchise died a long time ago you think they would have replaced it so i feel like they're always kind of like right after the putting things in there right after they're just about gone however I think that this is absolutely going to get picked up from everything that I've heard about the second season from horror fans and from you. It sounds like it's fantastic. So I just, I have a very hard time believing. And, and, and would you say that season two is better than season one? Just, just for just in terms of like, if it's only gotten better, why would it be canceled kind of thing? It opens up the door for even more stuff, which is all you can ask for. Cause a lot of times you watch some of these shows, especially the way that TV comes out nowadays. And they're basically pitched as limited series. And the season ends and you think, oh, what a great show. And that's usually the natural ending point. But then sometimes money talks, ratings talk, Twitter talks. And then the show is resurrected and it's usually not as good. But I thought season two was just as good, if not better, than season one. Hmm. And as, as good of an ending as season two has it definitely opens up the door for some more stuff in season three. And there's a lot more that they can do with this, this franchise. We, we, the continuity is, is pretty incredible. And the, you know, I, I'm a sucker for continuity, which is why I'm such a defender of the curse of Michael Myers, because it's like, well, we got this crazy plot. So let's see what we can really do with it. And they've done some things with it. And sometimes it's uh, sentimental, but not schmaltzy. If you know what I mean? Sometimes, sometimes things will happen. You're like, Oh, it's crazy that they're following up on this plot line from 34 or 32 years ago. But uh, mm. more often than not, it really does work. It doesn't just feel like fan service. It does serve a purpose to the plot, which is always important as well. So, yeah, that's, that's the current news, if you want to call it any news right now. Now, the breaking news. This literally came out like two hours ago, so I didn't even write it down. I'm just going to go to the website. Well, and this is kind of fitting with us going back to Steve Christie's bulletin board, right? It is very fitting because last night, well, first of all, there was a special screening of Friday the 13th Part 3D that Mike Vanderbilt 
close to the mic. You want to talk about? I, you know, we can talk about it a little bit because the the room was packed. It was at yeah. a super secret location here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. very cool. Uh, and we it was a release party for my new VHS label, Two Tree Video. Some more Chicago references for you. And we released uh, my partner Rafael Martinez short film. He did uh, All Your Secrets Will Be Your Noose. He went to Spain on vacation like around the pandemic and shot a short film on the fly. And it's kind of inspired by Spanish Giallo. And I was going to say the same thing that sounds just like a Spanish Giallo title. And it's, <laughs> it's very well done. Like I'm not, I will look, I've watched plenty of friends, short films where like the second or third time I had to watch it. I'm like, Oh God, I got to watch it again. But I always find something cool to watch, uh, to, to find in here. He does some really cool, uh, there's some real cool visual trickery. And the fact that he shot it on the fly with no real script is very impressive. But we also showed Friday the 13th part three afterwards in 3d off of the DVD. And I got to say, I mean, having seen it at the Music Box, having seen it at the Times Theater in Milwaukee, the 3D, the like the home 3D version, essentially, was pretty impressive. It was mm. the old school red and blue style 3D. And while oh. not as you know technically uh, uh, impressive as the, what we saw at the Music Box, still pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, a couple of people, fans of the pod, listened to our commentary. <laughs> and watched it. I was on sitting 3D there with the DVD. headphones on, yeah, listening to my own commentary. I remember you threatened to do that. That would have been the most incredibly narcissistic, amazing. <laughs> I would have done. The, we should have all just been there and done that, sit in the back with our legs crossed, <laughs> listening to us talk while the movie plays. But somebody else had a screening of Friday Thirteenth 3D last night. I believe it was in Los Angeles, California. It this was on a Friday Thirteenth Franchise dot com. There was reports about a screening in which. Brian Fuller, alleged showrunner of the upcoming Friday Thirteenth series, was at, as well as uh, Tracy Savage and friend of the pod. He played Shelley. You know his name? Oh, the uh, unfuckable Larry Zerner. No, oh, no, hold on, no, no, hold oh, on, now, no, 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 no. no. Shelley is yes, Larry Zerner was there as well. But there was a Q and A, and there was some information about the upcoming Friday Thirteenth series, Crystal Lake, uh, according to Brian Fuller. Writing begins in two weeks, and the writers of the show were in attendance at the screening. He said that there will be two scores for the show to choose from, the classic Manfredini score or a new score. Okay, let me, ask, let me stop right there. Vanderbilt, I know you're against any more Friday 13th, but let's say that you were, you were like, hey, let's check out this new Friday 13th show. What would you prefer? Would you prefer to hear the classic score incorporated, or would you want a new score? What would you want? I want the classic score. Yeah. So what? What, what was the choice? Because they used the same score. Th- they used the same score through all the movies. Like yeah. literally, like the same exact score. Why not keep that traditional ad? Mac, there will be either a new score or they will just use a lot of the Manfredini yeah, is score. Is this like an alternate? Are, were they opening that up as like a choice for the fans to decide, or were they just saying that? Because isn't that always the case? So why is that? How is that? The showrunners gonna, are going to produce are going to decide what to do. It's going to be t- between those two. Either they're going to go with the new score or they're going to stick with the classic. And I think they should stick with the classic, but I don't know what you think. Um, uh, yeah, stick with the classic. Because only really the fifth one is the only one that doesn't have any of the earlier entry scores. Remember we talked about that, which is a really strange mm-hmm. thing to do. Screamwriter Kevin Williamson will be writing an episode. Okay. Interesting. Adrian King who plays Alice in Friday 13th 1 and 2, will have a recurring role on the show. 
Brian Fuller pitched four seasons, but just the first one has officially been ordered. So I guess this thing really is happening. I mean, I think we were all kind of hesitant because of Brian Fuller's start-stop track record, but I'm assuming we'll have a lot more news as the year and this season goes on. Interesting stuff so far. I'll, I'll say that much. And we also like to thank these people for keeping the flame alive, which kind of helps keep this podcast alive because the more and more <laughs> of these movies and shows that exist, we can keep adding them to the episodes of content that we have for everybody out there. So yeah, Crystal Lake, Peacock, season one. Seems like this is really going to happen. We've taken the temperature of everybody fairly recently, so we don't have to go into that again. But uh, you know, keep your eye on that thermostat, folks, and there'll be much more to talk about in the future. Any other news? I don't think well, so. Matt, Mike, just, you got something? I just wanted to, it's not news, but I wanted to add something about watching Friday the 13th, Part 3 last night. So I had two observations, mm. having watched it twice in the same week, once for our commentary and once here at the... We we tease about Shelley, the character of Shelley, all the time. But I do, I did find more sympathy for him last mm. night. Like especially that that speech that he gives, uh, not a speech, but that aside when he talks about being being uh, a jerk is better than being a nothing. Yeah, like I, yeah. I I felt for him a little bit more. Also, Andy and Debbie, the best couple in the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. I, you know what's funny about that is when you think about so many of these other couples who start off as couples at the beginning of these movies, they either end up getting into huge fights or one of them acts like a total asshole. Right. But it never really happens with that couple. That's a good point. I wonder. They if, seem to just always be having a good time. All right. Mac, write this down. Get, I want to okay. on Zoom so I can see your pen and paper. A future potential episode, best couples well, of the Friday 13th series. Uh, Valentine's Day. Is right around the corner. Oh, guys. Okay, somebody literally write this down because I don't have a pen around me. But <laughs> that's a really I'll good just, idea. I'll put I it in. It. I, I will put it in my uh, child's play notes. There we go. Very exciting. Okay, there's a little there's a little behind the scenes inside baseball for all you listeners out there. Very exciting. It's very okay, organic so, process how these things come about. Just so yeah. you know, this is as workshoppy as it really gets, folks. I hope you enjoy them. <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, head out of the woods. Let's head back to Chicago, notably Wabash and Van Buren. And namely, Playland Toys. I got the Strangler, Wabash, and Van Buren! Okay, buckle up everybody, because we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the history of the Child's Play franchise, notably 1988's Child's Play, as well as the crucial quartet that's why I've dubbed them the Crucial Quartet that's responsible for this movie happening at all and, and the legacy that, that therein followed. But right off the bat, I've got to give a shout-out to Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins. Uh, Caffrey and I have sung their praises for their incredible Taking Shape books on the Halloween franchise. But, I mean, they may have outdone themselves with Reign of Chucky. It's their new book on the Child's Play franchise. I promise you, I've never talked to these people. This is not a paid <laughs> advertisement. This is just genuinely thanking them because I, I, I poured through the Child's Play section. I'm going to be pouring through the sections on the other movies as the year goes on. It, it really is an invaluable resource. Yeah, you, you inspired me. I think I'm going to have to pick that one up. It sounds it's fantastic. Kind of cool. There's some great interviews within, a lot behind the scenes. And 
Uh, kudos for them for an outstanding job. And the book is available. I mean, I'm really plugging the hell out of this, but it's deserved. The book is available through Harker Press and, yeah, wherever books are sold. Buy it. But before you do buy that, you should listen to this episode first, if I'm being honest. Let's listen yeah, to chill out. First. Just chill out. Calm we can down. give you some of the best parts, all right? There's plenty of times Amazon. to read. Put just your phone just, down. Listen to your Halloweenies. Espouse some, some facts and knowledge and some takes, of course, everybody always is happy with. So before, though, we can really begin to discuss the origins of Child's Play, the movie. And we have to go back to around this time and even earlier in the 80s and discuss a certain craze that all three of us were around for. I'm not sure how much Mac remembers it, but I remember it quite well. Uh, I remember it's, it a little bit. Yeah, it was a certain craze that was happening in, in toy stores you may have frequented or... And this will age the three of us. Toy stories your parents may have frequented. Uh, so, Mike, tell us about those toys and this era and what was going on. So let's let's take a trip back to ah, the 80s. Yes. The 80s. We love nostalgia, but writer Don Mancini has stated in interviews that his intent with Batteries Not Included, the original title uh, for the Child's Play script, was to satirize <laughs> the way toys were marketed towards children. And that all starts with the 80s' most popular monster, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here we go. In the 1960s. Look of the season six. <laughs> In the 1960s, the Mad Men of Madison Avenue saw how vital television could be. And ad- trust me, you're, everybody's like, where is this going? Trust me, we're going to get the child's play. Like, there's a, it's, it's, a, it's a windy road. It's not a, it's not a straight, straight line down Lakeshore Drive. In that's, the, that's the model of this podcast. The Mad Men of Madison Avenue uh, saw how vital television could be in advertising to children. And there's a term that I learned called pester power that suggests Mm -hmm. kids can influence 95% of what is bought in a house from food to drink to toys to vacation spots. Do you guys remember anything that you literally pestered your parents for that you actually got? I think we, we... It wasn't immediate, but eventually we finally beat them down psychologically emotionally everything uh, to get a nintendo in the late 80s yeah i also something. remember doing the same for the super nes mm-hmm. took a while but we did get it uh i i'm not sure about anything else i i mean i remember getting big toy you know like the Teenage Mutant ninja turtle yeah. sewer and stuff like that but i don't remember like Actively Pricey putting it on like a Christmas things. list or something and like really vying for it. You know, I think the, the, the game systems were the top two probably. Yeah, I never remember like really truly pestering my parents, but I might be misremembering that. Yeah, maybe that's something that we don't want to remember. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was, a nerf, there was a Nerf gun. It was a double barrel Nerf yeah, gun that yeah. I got. I remember pestering them for that, not thinking I would ever get it. And I did that year and I was very happy. Well, yeah. I've expressed on this show that I was spoiled rotten when I was a kid. I just got whatever the hell I wanted when it came to toys. Yeah, you were rock and rolling some of these movies, like like Rockman, <laughs> these, these R-rated catastrophes. I, like I tell you, I mean, it would have been on my ninth birthday that I watched Child's Play. Yeah, mm. that's not bad. And I don't remember it really scaring me that much. I just thought Chucky was cool. Yeah, yeah uh, I just I, I I wasn't quite in Andy Barclay's situation. You know, we weren't <laughs> we weren't like just only getting you know new clothes. Yeah, like yeah. I feel like we were getting a lot of you know a lot of gifts and stuff, but <laughs> like does. I feel for him in that scene because well. it, it, I know what it is to be a kid and and to really be getting a lot of stuff that that you probably need. And as an adult, you're looking at it like, yes, now we can live. You can live your life this year, boy. Well, I, I, I laugh at that scene because she seems, uh, Catherine seems generally shocked that he's not excited about those pants. I know. <laughs> well, we talked about this too. It's just you know the older you get. 
I mean, I love getting things like no joke, like socks and underwear for Christmas oh. or my birthday. I'm like, this is great. This is gonna, this is another six months. I, you know? Justin, <laughs> all I buy are clothes now. Like I, I get know, excited when I get new clothes. Give me, give me those easy the things you just wear every day that people don't think about. Anyway, so, anyway, the action for Reagan. the the action back to that back to history's greatest monster, Ronald Reagan. The action for children's television <laughs> was formed in Massachusetts to improve the quality of children's programming. Uh, seeing advertising towards kids is harmful. They went after shows they saw as promoting violence and eventually requesting that the SEC put a limit on advertising during children's programming. Uh, I couldn't find any real evidence of this outside of one article, but one of the first shows they went after was Romper Room because they had a line of toys that was meant to advertise the show, and they went after TV shows like the Herculoids, uh, like violent stuff, and we all kind of grew up in the golden age of that. Oh, which we're that reminds me of something, Venerable. That's, that's Ronald Reagan's famous speech when he goes, uh, Mr. Bochco... Tear down Hill Street Blues. <laughs> so there was a there's a there was kind of a four point plan, uh, a minimum of fourteen hours of programming for children of all ages during the week. No commercials during children's shows, which of course you know went out the window. Mm-hmm. Hosts on children's shows could not be pitchmen, so the hosts couldn't be selling anything to the kids. Wow. And shows must disclose when commercials were beginning and when shows were ending. And we rem- we all remember those great ABC bumpers after these messages will be right back that were usually animated with some sort of claymation. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why. And that's why. It's funny because this- I, I don't remember that ever really happening. I never remember our parents trying to follow through on that or saying – Okay, well, it's commercial time. Don't watch the commercials. Like, well, I don't that, remember that, that happening. That's because um, when we were that young, we were not aware that Americans are really lazy. <laughs> so no one, no one was actively sitting there waiting for the next commercial break to turn it off for the three minutes yeah. and then turn it back on. <laughs> like, oh, I'm sure that there was, was never going to work, you know? There was some weirdo, like, you know, granola parent who probably did that. But they probably didn't even let him watch any of the cool cartoons anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, so we get to 1981. Ronald Reagan, as president, appoints Mark Fowler uh, as the uh, – I, I, to a, a position. And one of his first points of order was to deregulate children's advertising despite ACT fighting the good fight. And that's why the 80s have the best toys, cartoons, and junk food. I mean, I was <laughs> talking a great about, time to live. We lived throughout the whole well, thing. I was talking to this with a colleague the other night. Like, I know our parents have a lot of nostalgia for, you know, when they grew up. But truly, was there ever a better time for toys, junk food, cartoons than the 1980s? I mean, look, I know it's, it's, it's one of those things that's like, you know, who, what era did you live in? Of course, we're going to, the ones who right, grew up in right, the 80s right. are going to be, oh, it's the 80s, and people will be, oh, the 90s, and then the, but I don't know. I have to tell people, I don't know if people remember, um, like, old chicken McNuggets at McDonald's and how good they used to taste. Like, this is, I mean, we're talking about like, the Wild West out here when it comes to junk food. Yeah. And toys and cartoons and everything. I mean, it was just all out there. There were Rambo cartoons, for Christ's sake. I mean, it was crazy <laughs> out there. I can't even – it's hard to even come up with a comp now. What would the comp now be, Mike or Matt? Well, that's just it. There's no Saturday like, morning cartoons anymore. Yeah. Well, now, now, before you say that, I feel like someone out there is going to come back with, yes, Bluey there are, doesn't count. and this is what it is. And blah. No, it's different, though. But Nobody different, gets up. It's different, yeah. It's, it's, it's not that appointment television anymore. Yeah, that's right. And 
So there's pluses and minuses, I guess. Like, you know, we salute you, Ronald Reagan, because it got us G.I. Joe, Transformers, He-Man. You know, this all comes as a result of this deregulation. Uh, And then in 1990, the new Children's Television Act would be put in place that would uh, kind of rein this all in again. So there is Mm. just this great 10-year period where, you know, there was all sorts of stuff. Like, you know, one of the things they did was, like the nineties, like if you had watched a GI Joe cartoon, you couldn't have a car- you couldn't have a commercial for GI Joe toys in wow in there because they, they knew what they were doing, and it was it's all kind of disingenuous. But to get to the point at hand, so nineteen eighty three, that was the year of the infamous, and there was a Wikipedia entry titled this: Cabbage Patch Riots. <laughs> that was the year, year I was born. December, oh. of ni- December of 83. So a little history on the Cabbage Patch Kids. They were inspired by the Little People dolls sold by Xavier Roberts that were not for sale, but rather adopted for anywhere from $60 to $1,000. In 81, designer and licensing <laughs> agent Roger L. Schaefer licensed a brand, comes up with a backstory with his wife. And in 82, Coleco's design team, headed by Judy Albert, streamlines the doll. And it became so popular for the Christmas season 1983, it led to fistfights in stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some great news footage, local news footage you can find on YouTube. And what do I want to say? Uh, I sent the guys this in the text thread, and I'll post this to social media. There was a page in the Chicago Tribune of like the want ads, and mm-hmm. there was a whole page of for sale Cabbage Patch dolls. The problem was, though, because there's another article that I found from about a guy in, up in Barrington, up in the Burbs, who was ripping people off. Like, send me $20 and I'll send you a Cabbage Patch doll. But they eventually caught up with him. But that's how popular these were. Uh, my mom had one. She bought hmm. one early on and was getting offers for a lot of money for it. But she's like, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm giving it to my daughter for, for Christmas. But one store was doing this thing where so they retailed for about 23 bucks. Mm-hmm. They would the store the toy store would buy back the Cabbage Patch doll for forty, and then resell it for fifty. Oh, God. that's how popular this was, and of course this led to, of course, uh, one that I think we might remember a little bit better in the nineties, the Tickle Me Elmo doll. Yeah, was similar, similar craze, yeah. similar craze. Well, Mac, you wanted to add something to that? Well, I was just going to ask Vanderbilt. So this was sixty to a thousand dollars in eighty three. So with inflation, it's, you know, like what are people looking at? Like if that happened now, that's like. I think it's like a hundred. Like, like that was a lot of money back then, you know. Yeah. Like uh, that was ins- insanity uh, to be paying that much, and that's why it was such a strange thing. It's like sixty dollars for a, a doll that can walk, talk, whatever, or crap itself, whatever. Uh, you know, Cabbage Patch Kids were pretty mundane. I, I and they were feel, homely right? Like, they, like they Cabbage Patch Kids. The one guy in the interview says the one toy store owner or manager is like, I do not understand the appeal of this at all. But Cabbage Patch Kids, now we're going down a whole Cabbage Patch <laughs> rabbit hole. But when they first came out, they weren't like doing all sorts of different things. They were just dolls, it right? It was just a doll adopt. with adoption paper. Yeah, it wasn't like it was like a build a bear, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. It Be- wasn't anything special. It wasn't, you know, doing gymnastics or talking or, you know, or shitting a, itself, like you said. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But to your point, like, so I think the good guy doll, as we know it in Child's Play, is inspired by a couple different. Real life toys, one being mm-hmm. the Cabbage Patch doll, and definitely the craze. Like I always forget, though, in the movie that it's not that she can't get a hold of one; it's that she didn't have enough time to save up 
for it because it's so expensive. It's expensive, right. but it, right. it does kind of, I think, touch on that whole idea of like they're very hard to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Good Guy Doll is inspired not only by Cabbage Dolls but Teddy Ruxpin, who comes out in '85 and overtakes the Cabbage Patch Kids as the best-selling toy of '85 to '86. Now Teddy Ruxpin, my, it was a like a little bear doll, yes, right, yeah, from what I remember. And you put a cassette tape in him, That's right. and he would tell you a story. Mm-hmm. Which I think is definitely you see a lot of that in in Chucky. Well, the and movie my AI, buddy, the movie that? AI, yes. is basically a Teddy Ruxpin yeah. uh, robot that is the That's kid's right. friend. Yeah, and then of course my buddy and his counterpart, kid sister, who came out kid in eighty five. Kid sister, kid sister, and me. And I knew those. I knew those dolls were stupid when they came out. I was, not a <laughs> I was never for that interested. One. <laughs> I was never. But I do laugh. There was uh, some behind the scenes footage from Child's Play where there was definitely a kid or uh, uh, my buddy doll sitting in the makeup studio. That's so, very I funny. Mean, without a doubt, it is in inspiration. So there's a little uh, '80s history on uh, marketing towards kids and the awful things us adults do. But you know, I think at least the three of us became better people because of it. <laughs> Honestly, would we have this podcast if it wasn't for the love of all that stuff from 40 years ago? Probably not. So thanks a lot, Vanderbilt. Now, we, listen, we got a better understanding of where the popular culture was regarding child's toys, child's dolls, and how this could have entered the mindscape of a young Don Mancini, who was attending film school at UCLA around this time. So he was still in school when he came up with this idea and, and wrote it. So... When you watch Child's Play, and I hope you do, and you see the sadness on Andy's face when he does not get that doll, and then the ultimately, you know, the, the, the genuine despair and the desperation of his mother's actions to get a good guy doll for him, this was not just some writer's flat fancy. I mean, this was, for lack of a better word, a, a pandemic that was sweeping the nation at yeah. the time. It's like, you, you touched upon this, Vanderbilt. It's an attitude of if you don't have one, you are missing out. You know, executives were creating, molding a sense of isolation and shame for those who, who either couldn't find one or, in this instance, couldn't afford one. You said, Max, sixty to two thousand dollars, and forty years ago was roughly. I mean, it's like it's over one hundred fifty dollars to twenty five hundred dollars today. I mean, can you imagine having to pay that anytime? It's, it's pretty crazy. But fortunately, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, you know, yeah, everything's right. fine now. No, I'm kidding. Shoes and, and video games and everything else, it's still a nightmare out there. But essentially for a doll that that kid's going to maybe play with for like three months before the next exactly. new thing comes out. You know what I mean? Like that's just always kind of like – I remember being constantly turned down by my parents whenever I wanted to get something. Even if it was like $5, they were just like, no, because they knew. They knew. They knew. Yeah. That I <laughs> was not right. going <laughs> to, as soon as I had it, I was going to play with it for like a week and then that would be it. And, <laughs> you know, like it's it's brutal. Mac, what was your favorite toy growing up, would you say, in the 80s? Oh, I, in the 80s. Hmm. Or, or even, even to think about that. in the 2010s. <laughs> That's what he sends it. No, I I feel like my favorite toys were probably in the early, early 90s mm. because they were like the X-Men action figures, right? Stuff oh, like that. Yeah. Those were cool. But that was, again, it directly tied in to the X-Men television show, the cartoon. And mm. I was absolutely seeing, you know, commercials for those when I was watching those as a six-year-old child. But... If I'm gonna, if we're gonna stay in line with '80s stuff, absolutely GI Joes. 
I mean, yeah, we had yeah. a billion G.I. Joe figures and, uh, you know, Beachhead to this day is probably <laughs> one of my faves, personal faves. Tunnel Rat. I love uh, Tunnel Rat. All uh, these, all these for, from the movie. Yeah, Joe, the movie. Roadblock. You know, I, I, we could go let's down just, that Let's just hole, have but, you list all 80 of them. Yeah, Keep going. Uh, okay. Cobra Commander, Flint, Crimson Guard, Duke, Flint, Night Viper, Lady J. Yeah, Lady Scar- J, oh, the Scarlet. The bat was cool because he was a robot. Uh, you know, worm. Okay, w- look, I got it. Like, o- wait, look. R- dot M. <laughs> we all love GI Joe, I believe. But Vanderbilt, what about you? What was your go-to toy? Uh, it was probably Star Wars, Transformers, yeah, GI sure. Joe. Like those are the big three. But then right. I always had, I did always have like the, because like I said, uh, my mom spoiled me rotten. Uh, then there were like weird, like those sidelines. Like uh, remember Starcom? They were spaceships Star- that had magnets on them. Oh, maybe I missed that one. Maybe my they parents were, they steered were cool. us clear of that one. Uh, like Captain Power was cool. I remember I Captain Power. like Silverhawks and... Mm. Silverhawks fits in that, but I never had those. I had uh, a couple of those. I like Molecule Man or something like that. <laughs> uh, the uh, Centurions, they were these really big... Oh, yeah, Centurions. Uh, yeah. We like had a, always... I had a Centurions puzzle that was always missing a piece. <laughs> I found that thing I, on I never... eBay recently. It was crazy. It took me right back. I never had one, but I always thought the Inhumanoids were really cool. They were these really big plastic monsters. It sounded like Inhumans. Being honest with you, yeah, but I, yeah, I had a, I had all those, I had all those toys. I think. We I mean, still in, have in a addition lot of to those two, I feel like I was Generation One and really the only generation uh, because of my age. Invariably, maybe this is the same for you, but that had He Man. Oh, loved um, loved He Man too. Yeah. First generation He Man. I uh, still remember my dad coming home with Castle Grayskull and a bunch of yeah. toys. Uh, it must have been my birthday or something. And those were, you want to talk about specifically, that cartoon was created for the toys. It was not <laughs> vice versa. So that was Absolutely. a good example of the advertising right there. This cartoon is literally just to get you to get Orko, you know, <laughs> the little wizard with the <laughs> black face and the yellow eyes. <laughs> no face and yellow eyes, I guess it was. But look, we all love toys, but uh, we, we have to put our toys away. For a little bit, because believe it or not, there's even more to talk about, and we're only 40 minutes into the episode. <laughs> so again, there was a crucial quartet, four people that were integral to the child's play that we all know and love today. Uh, first up, mentioned them earlier, Tom Mancini. Go back to the 80s again. Vanderbilt, you mentioned he wrote a script titled Batteries Not Included, which he changed when he caught wind of a Steven Spielberg movie that was entering production around that time. Who remembers this movie? I remember well, it was a very watched sorry, it on yeah. cable. Yeah. Watched it on cable all the time, and as a kid was very upset that there were no toys from that movie because I thought those robots were really cool. Yeah, missed opportunity. Why they didn't just make those those robots well, into you toys? Bizarre. Talk about the, big, the biggest missed opportunity of all time was why was there never a Johnny Five I was just going to say that know. short circuit. I, yeah, that now, was great stuff. As you see on my shelf back there, I have one that somebody made. Like, it's pretty good. But that didn't get that until like five, six years ago. Oh, you've got, I see that, but that's specifically from the second one. I see Michael McKeon and Fisher Stevens <laughs> right next to it. Um, <laughs> oh, wait, but look, I got to tell you something about the Sparrow's Not Included yeah. real quick. Mm-hmm. This is where the 80s were. The 80s were not that ageist. Because Steven Spielberg, at the height of his powers, was like, let's make a movie called Batteries Not Included about these little mini rope um, alien spaceships that kind of uh, enter into this old apartment complex. Yeah. And it's going to star Hume Crone and Jessica Handy, Candy, 
who are fresh off the success of Cocoon. Well, there, there's like, like old people wave. There's yeah, like an old really people was. wave happening and, and like cool hip old people. And it was like, let's we want to make a big blockbuster with these people. I mean, look, it was a good time. Great actors all. But it was a very different time. You're not seeing that happen now. <laughs> They're not going to be like this is the next big Christopher Nolan movie is going to be starring. You know, maybe he would do something like that. I, I can't even think of another example. Michael Bay's next movie will be starring, you know, I don't well, know. Who's uh, old now? Brad Ju- Pitt. Judy Dench and uh, Robert Redford or something like that. It's just not going to happen anymore. Uh, but more importantly, after he changed the name of the script, during this time, Don Mancini happened to be roommates with somebody who was working for an Orion Pictures producer. Now, when people say it really boils down to who you know, it's equal parts reality and also soul-crushing. But in Mancini's case, it would it would lead to a dream and a career come true and a life come true later on. But so the name of the script was changed to Blood Buddy with a very different premise. So this is the first draft that he wrote. Uh, the doll would kill people who have wronged Andy, but is only awake when Andy is asleep. And how does this happen? It's because Andy mixes his real blood with the doll's blood. Yes, this brand of doll came with internal fake blood as the selling point. And I love that because that it's so like it, it's right up there with like when Mac was joking about these dolls that piss and shit themselves. Yes. And if anybody's seen uh, the new hit film, Megan. Oh, I've seen it. Oh, no. Oh, there's a there's a parody of dolls like that. That's good. Right in the opening. Pretty good commercial. Pretty good. Fit. Megan's well, pretty good. I enjoyed it. I think we should probably cover Megan this year. Yeah, it, it makes, makes sense. sense. But, I think um, it's funny to see. It. It's kind of like RoboCop, right? Taking it to that that next absurd level where now the dolls are have blood, and if you if you, they get a cut, you can go mm-hmm. and get bandages for it, or you can get re- replacement transplant blood. Exactly. And stuff. It's like, what's the exactly. next? Thing? What, what else could you possibly do with a doll kind of thing? It's when so I heard funny. that little bit from the script, I thought it was so sharp because it's very much in line with taking the piss out of all this advertising stuff. That of course they would find a way to get you to buy specific good guys band-aids like branded band-aids <laughs> yep. for this doll so uh then soon though in this plot the doll realizes that if andy never wakes up the doll can stay alive forever mm. and uh the ending would have taken place at the doll's factory does that sound familiar it does but how did the doll Child's find that too. out <laughs> You know I don't you know. Like, he read the instruction manual. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Like it says, it says it, it, the instruction manual says if a child ever mixes their own blood with yours and you become human. Yeah, that's <laughs> this right. Is what, this is what please, might happen to for you. eighteen and over only. Please let your children read this. So the draft is out there. Orion doesn't take it, and funny enough, Charles Band, a Full Moon <laughs> Features fame, he liked it, but he ultimately passed. Yet he did go on to make a couple very important dollish. Uh, toy-like films. I just pictured uh, Charles Band like just like getting when someone else is writing a killer doll movie and like running over to the office. Like, what are you like, doing over here? What do you got going on? We got to do dolls right now. Yeah, because dolls and Puppet Master obviously were big things. But he did end up making because it took so long for Child's Play to be written and ultimately produced and released. Don Mancini's first movie is a Charles Band movie called Cellar Dweller. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Mancini... Things happen when you know you write a movie that come, comes out. A lot of times things change. Maybe you're not as thrilled with it. So 
It was actually released under an alias, which I don't actually have pulled up right now if somebody wants to find that. It was pretty yeah, good name, remember. too. Cellar uh, yeah. Dweller is actually a pretty good picture. We showed that at Cigars and Stripes last year, and oh, Toei Gear did a very cool uh, T-shirt. Great poster art on that one. Well, somebody, uh, Mac, Mike, look up the name of, the, of his alias there while I keep going here. Yeah, uh, but, uh, it was we got the it. film, right? Yeah. Um, I've got it pulled up here, and I can... The magic of podcasting. (laughs) Kit Dubois. Kit Dubois. That was the alias. Somebody's got to use that as as a nickname. Oh, I thought you were saying the title of the film was different. No, no. Don Mancini. Don Mancini wrote it under the name Kitty Dubois, essentially. So, long story short, God forbid, it did end up in the hands of producer David Kirshner. Now, David Kirshner is the second of the crucial quartet to get Child's Play made. Uh, Now, Kirshner, though, is, is. not to throw producers under the bus, but he was kind of unique. He was not just a producer working behind the scenes and overseeing the creatives. He was a creative himself. Yeah. He did illustrations for Jim Henson, where he worked on like the Muppets and Sesame Street. And he's credited with the story for an American tale, which would go on to become the biggest non-Disney animated movie of all time back in 1986. For those of you who don't yeah. know, it's about this... It's like it's it's mice from Russia who immigrate to America. It's very much trying to to tell the tales of Russian immigrants back in the early part of the 20th century. Um, Somewhere out there, great song by Linda mm-hmm. Ronstadt and God bless Don Bluth. Pablo Bryson, I think, is the other person on that song. We'll never know. Um, and more importantly, though, um, when all said and done, David Kirshner drew the Chucky design and is credited with that in the closing credits. By the way. Uh, and as fate would have it, around the time the Blood Buddy draft was making the rounds, David Kirshner discovered a book called The Dollhouse Murders and decided that he wanted to make a horror movie revolving around dolls. Now, Mac, can you name some other famous killer doll movies and shows that popped up before Child's Play? Yeah, so I'll go – I'll start early on and, and mm. crawl up, and if I miss anything pre-Child's Play, let me know, y'all. Tag him, please, immediately on Twitter and, and start yelling at him. How dare you forget? Like, and something. I'm also talking to you, too. <laughs> 1945, Dead of Night. Classic. Oh, yeah? um, with Hugo the Dummy. And uh, I haven't seen it, but when I, I read about it, and it is a killer ending. It now, is, let me ask you a question. It is scary. <laughs> is this the same? Wasn't, was Dead of Night remade in the 70s? It's a different anthology. They're both oh, yeah. anthologies. There you uh, go. Okay. The Dan Curtis one is from 79, and Ed Begley Jr. is in one segment about a car. Yeah. This one, uh, right. really cool. We screened it at the Music Box of Horrors drive-in two, three years ago. Nice. All right, Mac. What else you got? Um, we've, then we've got uh, Talkie Tina from The Living <laughs> Doll and Twilight Zone. Season five. Season five, episode five, or something like that, something crazy like that in 1963. Is that one yes. of the hour long ones? I can't no, remember. No, no, it's a 30 minute no, one. It's just 30 minute. Uh, oh, we have what's the, crazy about that episode is is maybe the scariest thing of all is seeing Telly Savalas with hair. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he barely. Really well, weird. yeah, yeah. He's he's got some hair in that. More he's hair got, than he's usual. Got full head of hair, I believe. Doesn't he? You know what? Uh, yeah, I, I think he's kind of losing it at that point. It never he's not happened, but they were going to remake that Talking Tina segment in the 2000s. With Ving Rhames from the 2005 oh. reboot of Kojak. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> Tina loves you, baby. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, we've got the Zuni doll from Trilogy of Terror. 
1975. Another Dan Fun Curtis fact, production. That was when we were thinking about doing another Black Christmas. It was gonna <laughs> we were gonna do that because Karen Black was in it, and we were gonna talk about during Christmas time. <laughs> it would have been a hit. It would have been, I think Richard Matheson, you said, I think uh, wrote that as a matter of fact. So mm-hmm. okay. we have Anthony Hopkins' ventriloquist film Magic in '78. William Goldman. Wrote the book. It's based on his book. He also adapted it for the big screen. Pretty effective mm-hmm. movie, I think. Yeah. And then uh, another. Well, I, I think this kind of works, but the clown and poltergeist. Oh, absolutely. That absolutely influenced it. Hundred <laughs> percent. The, the scariest, um, I think, of all of these dolls that we discussed. And then, uh, of course, when we just mentioned it, but it was kind of came out like right around the same time as Charles Band's Dolph. Mm-hmm. Dolls also uh, in '87. So that's all I have. I'm sure I'm missing, oh, especially television the, and stuff. But no, those are the big ticket numbers that I remember. Those are the the tiny tent poles that I could find as, yeah. as they as there were. And also around this time, because you know you had like the talking Tinas of the world, and even the the trilogy of terror doll. I mean, there's only so much you can do with those dolls. A lot of it's just audio and clever camera work, but. By the time Child's Play was going to be made, Gremlins had arrived. And there was just a lot more you could do with 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 creatures, with animatronics. And so, yeah, Kirshner ended up saying, okay, I want to do this movie Blood Buddy. And MGM, United Artists, wound up distributing it. We just discussed an MGM movie last year on our Patreon. We actually literally just mentioned the movie. What was the movie? That influenced... Oh, Poltergeist? Poltergeist is the movie. That's right. Huh. MGM Zone. And you know what, folks? When you're done with this episode, you should really check out patreon.com backslash Pod for that episode and much, much more. We got commentaries. And anyway, uh, this, this feels like one of those illegal commercials back in the 80s during <laughs> children, <laughs> children <laughs> cartoons. Can't, can't, can't advertise our own shows in the show, Justin. Can't do it. Cannot do it in the own yeah, show. Yeah, the FCC. Okay. Had, the uh, ghost of Ronald Reagan will come after us. Mr. Gerber, tear down Halloweenies. <laughs> tear down Halloweenies. Uh, so, but Kirshner did say that due to Mancini's inexperience, that the studio did not want him working on any additional drafts. So that's it. That the only involvement that Don Mancini had in, in the pre-production and production of Child's Play is that first draft, and it's crazy to think about that now with somebody who is so intrinsically tied to the franchise to this very day. And, and he was not on set during the production of that movie at all. And I think it's worth crazy. noting that's why I think this film feels different than yeah. everything else that comes away. And I mean, you can debate it whether it's better or uh, you know. Worse for that, I yeah. think. We I really like the tone of this movie, and they never really quite recaptured it, but maybe it's best that they didn't try. Yeah, well, I think we'll get into that, too, about our reasons for that. Uh, the better or worse were just different of it all as it went on. But before we get into why he wasn't allowed on, maybe not allowed on set, I've got to talk about the third member of this crucial quartet, John Lafayette. But I do want to say... I don't want to talk too much about his career because let's just say he directs Child's Play 2. Let's just throw it out there. Maybe he directs Child's Play 2 and we can get more into his career on that episode. But I do want to discuss what he brought to this movie, uh, which Lafayette himself discussed with Mental Floss back in 2019. They've got a really good oral history on Child's Play as well. And Lafayette says 
the biggest contribution I made was to give the character a backstory. It was a human who somehow became a doll. I coined the name Chucky. My device was not voodoo. It was more of a Frankenstein type of moment at a toy factory. A prisoner was being electrocuted on death row and his spirit somehow got into the doll. We would cross cut with his execution and the doll being manufactured. So that that he is the one that came up with it. it Not just being some doll that got possessed with Andy's blood or whatever it was. This is different. This is going to be, like I said, some guy in an electric chair getting zapped at the same time a spirit goes into the doll. But it was, they could not figure out a great way to incorporate that into the main plot and just make sense of it at all. As a matter of fact, but Laffy also says he also was not allowed on set. So it kind of backs up what Mancini was saying. But Matt, go ahead. They did go on to figure that plot device out, though, in films House House 3 and Shocker. That's right. <laughs> the, horror, the horror show, a.k.a. <laughs> yeah, House right. 3. Good point. You know, I've been saying that for some reason, Don Mancini and John Laffey weren't necessarily allowed on sets. And you're probably like, well, why, why is that? Why couldn't they come to the set of something that they, that they worked on? Apparently, the reason was... Tom Holland, the third member of this Crucial Quartet. Now, Tom Holland was a bit player in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s before he turned his hand to screenwriting and ultimately directing. And he had a hell of a run. I mean, a great run. People still talk about his work today. This is from the 80s. The Beast Within, class of 1984. The How Dare You... But I can't believe you pulled it off. Psycho 2. <laughs> Cloak and Dagger, a movie I grew up on with Henry Thomas and Dabney Coleman. Fright Night, which he also directed, and then Child's Play. And, you know, the 90s saw two Stephen King works that we've talked about over on the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Sure, check it out over there. He did the uh, Langoliers miniseries for ABC and the quote-unquote Richard Bachman novel, a.k.a. Stephen King. Of novels uh, thinner. Also wrote and directed a very creepy Tales from the Crypt episode starring Patricia Arquette, who is in love with a scarecrow, which when I saw Pearl, I was getting major flashbacks to that episode. I think it's called Four-Sided Triangle, if, if I'm remembering that correctly. Pat me on the back, because I do not have that written down. So based on what I heard about Fright Night, it seems like Tom Holland is a real actor's director, because it seems like the people behind the scenes were those who had the real issues with him. But going back even further, Holland's role in the movie was was pretty complicated because he was attached to be involved with it as early as 1986. But he could not come up with a real satisfying way for Lafia's version of the events with the killer and being possessed and shocked or whatever it is. He could not figure out a good way to make that part of the story, so he actually dropped out. He dropped out because of that, but also he wanted to get away from horror. Does anybody know what he directed in the mid-80s in between Fright Night and Child's Play? He did Fatal Beauty. Which you would think was a horror film. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mac, I'm happy you mentioned that because apparently the production and and the release of that movie was indeed a horror film. Uh, That movie starred Whoopi Goldberg, Sam Elliott, and most importantly, Brad Dourif. Brad Dorff was in Fatal Beauty. So this is the wildest thing. And this is I've confirmed this with other a bunch of sources. 
you can think about these four directors' careers, and you might think, that's impossible. There's no way that they would have made, made this movie. But you also have to take into consideration where these directors were uh, you know, at this time in their careers. So here were the legitimate candidates that MGM was looking into to helm child's play. First off, William Friedkin, who's, who's obviously dealt with possession in the past, and by this time in the 80s was kind of persona non grata in Hollywood, to say the very least. Uh, he made a movie called Rampage around this time that wouldn't get released for like four years. It wasn't a good time for, to be William Friedkin. I think Friedkin would have done an okay job on this one. I think he would have done an okay job too, yeah. Well, then, uh, I, then I saw The Guardian a couple years later, and you know, maybe it, the time had passed for horror and Friedkin. But number two, I know the two of you will know this one, Irvin Kirshner, director of Never Say Never Again. <laughs> of and course. of course, the only, the only <laughs> film he's called, ever made. <laughs> and a movie called The Empire Strikes Back. He was under consideration. I thought David might be related to Irving. Oh yeah, but I no, no, but they're but not. No, they're not. No. I think there's they an extra their C. names differently. Yeah, yeah. there's a C, yeah. I believe, involved yeah. in the producer's name. Joseph Rubin, who was coming off, who would be, I think he actually ended up doing the stepfather instead, which I love. Ooh, and so I think he ended up doing Sleeping with the Enemy too. He did some good suspense thrillers in the late '80s. Would have been an interesting choice, and. Robert Wise, director of West Side Story, <laughs> The Haunting, infamously in some cases, the Star Trek, the motion picture. So, yeah, it's pretty. I think the sound of music, too. Didn't Robert Wise do the sound of music? Anyway, for God's sakes. Would have been such a different movie. Yeah, it would have been a different movie, different experience. I think I can see that working if it was more of a ventriloquist film. Or and not as much of a a doll actually seeing the doll move or do anything ever. You know, if it was more like Taki Tina, right, like the living doll, I can see it being really a haunting esque thing. Yeah, in the haunting esque way, and and I think which I think he does really well. But yeah, that would have been a totally different franchise. I think it is interesting with this film uh, in the production, not only like who they were considering, but who they got. Like, there's definitely an element of class. The child's play that you don't get in a lot of low budget, and this is relatively low budget horror pictures from that era. Well, let's jump ahead for a second because that's a good point, Mike. And what I have here in my notes is that how many times have we talked about horror movies from the early 80s in which nothing really happens in the first 45 minutes and you're just dying? Like, like I think for me, <laughs> Prom Night is a good example where nothing happens. And there's like a pretty good final 30 minutes, but man, that first 45 minutes to an hour is brutal. But the difference is, is like you said, you got like some really great talent here involved. Behind the scenes, you've got Kirshner, you've got Tom Holland, a veteran. And in the cast, it's just it's veteran actors involved, who we'll obviously talk about in the future category, but it makes a lot of difference when you got people who are really just at the top of their I mean cinematographer game and know what to do, you know. Cinematographer Bill Butler yep. who shot Jaws. Like you've got the guy working on Jaws, working yep. on your killer doll picture. That's pretty crazy. I mean, but MGM had a lot of power back in the 80s, too. They were doing and pretty cinematographers good. cinematographers are weird. Cinematographers are, in the sense, like, when you look at a lot of their careers, how mm-hmm. they do, it, it. for a lot of it, it is truly just a job. And they jump from genre to genre, budget to budget. Uh, they're, uh, I think cinematographers maybe the more, most, or editors, the most workmanlike. Of- I think they are. I and mean, you always hear these horror stories about new directors 
having to deal with veteran cinematographers. <laughs> yes. You know? But that's – in this instance, though, Tom Holland had been around. He knew everybody, and so I think there was a lot more respect paid to him by people in those roles, if not – you know, if not the producers, Holland just seems like he's easy to get along with. I, I think, like I said, it seems like the the cast because he uses a lot of his cast in, in different movies, as we'll discuss later on too. But long story short, once again, God forbid, uh, because of the production delays, though, Holland was then able to return after Fatal Beauty to the project, and he did a draft of his own. And I was kind of shocked to learn this. This is everything that he came up with and added. He came up with the idea of a serial killer with a partner that were based on the real-life hillside stranglers, which is really fun uh, research to look into. Enjoy that. (laughs) He came up with the idea of said serial killer possessing a doll via quote-unquote voodoo. Holland wrote the incantation. He says that, I mean, if you look it up, the incantation is part French, part Haitian Creole, but it really is complete gibberish if you translate it. So anybody out there trying to do a spell or anything, don't get any ideas. It's not going to work. He's the one that moved the plot from just the basic suburbs to Chicago. He made Karen a more relatable struggling store clerk because initially she was a kind of a successful ad exec that Andy resents. There's a lot of resentment that he has towards adults in the, in the first draft. And I want to say she actually maybe worked on the Chucky doll. Yeah, well, yes, he he played a part in that as well. He played a part in that as well. No, I'm saying like um, uh, her character, Catherine Hicks' character, was a media Oh, you mean like in terms of working on the marketing for the doll? You mean like an ad exec? You might be right. You might be right, which was kind of incorporated in the next movie. That would make sense, right? And kind of like the whole RoboCop-esque feel of what they're trying to say about ads and toys and everything. And he also made the babysitter a best friend of Karen's who Andy loved because again, in the first draft, it was somebody that Andy did not get along with. Like Andy was almost the villain in a lot of ways of that first draft. <laughs> well, shit. And he also invented the subplot of Chucky needing to possess Andy to get out of the body and into Andy's body. That was his idea. Wow. And ironically enough, Kirshner and Mancini hated. Oh yeah. I was the voodoo possession plot change at the time, which is crazy when you think about all the movies in the TV series and how integral that plot is well, and, in and, the storyline. They hated it so much, but they had to keep with it in all of the other films. And you know, know. it becomes like the thing they, that defines the Chucky, you know. And they never ditched it. I mean, I man, seeing those say ultimately he came to obviously enjoy playing around with that trope because, like I said, it plays heavily into the, Latin, the next six movies and the TV series especially. But I just I had no it, idea that Tom Holland had, that, had played that big of a part. In I the, think in you the need movie. all that. I think you need all that for this. Uh, you need it because it's work. ultimately silly, which is where the movies ended up going. And I think wisely. So in some cases, I think, yeah, but you know, what it's like, it's what we talked about. It's the inverse of what happened with Jason lives going into the new blood where you have this really funny, take on Jason. How can you possibly go back to it being serious again, <laughs> which they right. tried to do with the new blood? Well, this is deadly serious. How I shouldn't say deadly serious. This does have a tongue in cheek bit yeah. to it, obviously. And I think yeah. that's, that's Chucky lot, walking around. I mean, come on. I think that's a lot to do with Holland. I think Holland yeah. just has a light touch with his script writing and directing. The, it's something intangible because you get a lot of that on Fright Night and Psycho Fright too. Night. Oh, totally. And so it's, it's one of those things where like, okay, this works for this movie. But you can't really keep the suspense of Chucky going for another five movies unless you no, really I, kind of play it up. 
as much as two, I don't seem to, I don't like two as much as I did when I was a kid, or I think as much as you guys do. There, what else can you do? You could not yep. make another scary child's play movie, like another truly terrifying child's play movie. Exactly. Because once the, once the cat's out of the bag, what's the cat going to do once it's out of the bag? That's really the, the, the plot of the sequels. Um, but anyway, I was just kind of blown away by Holland's involvement. So yeah, I should also mention good old creative producer, David Kirstner also is the one that came up with the name of Charles Lee Ray. Does anybody know what those three uh, words in that name uh, come from? It's uh three, uh, three other three named killer. It's like, isn't it like Charles Manson, mm-hmm. uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, Lee Harvey mm-hmm. Oswald and, James Earl Ray. Yes. Was the third one. So, and here is how the movie was credited. So we've named the, the four people of this crucial quartet, hashtag crucial quartet. Story, Don Mancini. Screenplay, Don Mancini, John Lafia, Tom Holland. But Tom Holland claims that he should have received, he believes he should have received sole credit for the screenplay. But says that the WGA hates... Uh, favoring directors slash writers. They really do try to promote their writers, which I understand as, a, as an agency, as a, as, a, as a union. And Mancini was mad for years that Holland was mad. So they've had some bad <laughs> blood. And I'm not talking about blood buddy. I'm talking about li- that they were kind of at odds for years and years. I think that they've kind of softened up over the years because the movie's been successful. They've had successful careers. But <laughs> everybody made, it was everybody got note. paid, everybody got <laughs> yeah. laid. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, folks, the story does not end. Because after a lackluster initial test audience response, 30 minutes were cut from the movie. There's some notes here I want to save about Chucky okay. and Chucky's voice. We're going to save that for the Chucky section. But I do okay. want to say, if you watch the movie and it opens with Norris chasing after Charles Lee Ray, you look in the background, you see Norris throw something away. What he's throwing away is a crucial part I keep saying crucial, but it's it's essential. Uh, he's throwing away a dress because the movie initially opens with Charles Lee Ray hitting on a woman who turns out to be Detective Norris and drag, who then chases after him, and you see him throw away the dress. Little Nighthawks action. Little yeah, night- oh, oh, absolutely. That, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the inverse of Nighthawks that kicks things off instead of closing things out. But I was also wondering if that was a, a callback to Dog Day Afternoon. Because oh. <laughs> Chris Sarandon plays oh, yeah. a trans woman in that, um, so it's it's a funny Easter egg now to see if, when you watch it now. And, and stills and video of that are impossible to find, but they've got to be out there somewhere. So I, I have a question for you guys. Yeah, so I watched this movie one more time last night, and I saw that it clocks in essentially at like eighty four minutes. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now we all would love to see this extra stuff. Yeah. But does the movie work better? Without it. I have this note, Mike. It's that who knows what it would have been with Holland's original vision, but I'm happy with what we got because it is mercifully like an 87 minute with credits movie, which I always clamor for. And I, it would have been much more of a psychological movie because there's some other things that were deleted. There were a lot more. There's a lot more discussion about Andy's father having passed away, who, by the way, if you look at the photos of Andy's father, (laughs) that's Tom Holland. That's that's rare to Tom really? Holland. Yeah, um, there's a lot more interrogation in that interrogation scene with Andy. Um, some really dark, sad stuff with Andy's father. 
a lot more at the hospital. You you see the little girl in that scene when um she tells Karen what happened with Chucky and where Andy went. She's the one I believe that she brings Chucky onto the grounds. There's a scene of that happening. So yeah, there's just a lot of stuff that was cut. Like basically a quarter of the movie was cut. I, I tweeted about this a while back, and it was sort of tongue in cheek, but also something I believe in. We need more producers that aren't filmmakers who will just cut like anything they want from a movie just to get it down to the runtime <laughs> to the 90. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause it works sometimes. Cause in this case, now that you like when I watch it now and I know that these other scenes existed, you can see like, there's still loose ends to quote Mike Norris. Like there's a whole sequence that supposedly um, Andy uses a remote control car to attack Chucky. Yeah, if you look earlier on in the movie, you see some toys that were that were going to be incorporated into the finale, almost a Home Alone type thing where well, he uses his own toys to, to kill Chucky. I noticed it last night. There's a scene where you actually kind of see him like before he grabs the baseball bat when he's hiding in the closet. Like he kind of examines the car, and when you know that's where it's going, like you're you're kind of disappointed. But otherwise, you would have never even thought up about on it. that. Yeah, I, right. I think this works better as a tight. 84 minute movie. I, it's one of the, I guess we've just seen a lot of horror films come out, especially over the last five, 10 years that are clocking in at two hours. Mm. And, and even if it's an Ari Aster film, like I just think it's too ambitious. It's hard to, to keep the level of suspense and tension for two hours, two straight hours. And I think an hour and a half, you only have to, Get through, like, I think what Chucky, you don't actually see Chucky really move and talk until like halfway into the movie. The Dr. Death sequence. Yeah, the Dr. Death sequence. So it's just an easier time frame to manage and keep the suspense there and keep the driving force. Unless you're a master filmmaker, which, you know, and even then, like, if you're going to, if they're going to be sequels and they obviously didn't know whether or not not they're going to be seven sequels of this or whatever. An hour and a half is just prime. I, I I don't think you need any anything longer than that. If you can't make a scary movie in an hour and a half, you know you shouldn't be making the movie. And this isn't a Friday Thirteenth Part Seven, the New Blood situation, where I would love to see, you know, that movie uncut. I would love to see these deleted scenes, obviously, but I don't need well, to yeah. see a, a two-hour version of Chucky. I don't, I don't need to see the director's cut. Is what I'm saying. It's point. not the Aliens director cut. Well, we're like. No. This, it would make it a better film if you put it all together and you really... But I think it would go on a little long. I think you would get a little tired maybe of some of the tropes. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just think this, this just feels so tight and um, no muss, no fuss, you know? Well, because of the tightness, Chucky does not come to life until literally 43 minutes into the movie, which is literally halfway through the movie. So, I mean, I think it works and perfectly as what it is. And he's memorable when he's on screen. But I have a question for you guys. Hmm. Try to put your... You know, this hat on, I guess. You watch Child's Play for the first time now. It's a modern movie. It's made. Mm. Do you find yourself saying, like, asking questions that would have been answered in those cutscenes? No. I, like and, I said, and being uh, upset what... about it, like, oh, why didn't they go into this? Why didn't no, they go into that? No, when you no. do, like, uh, you put your critic hat on, right? Because I think there's a lot of... That goes on in movies now. I think maybe that's part of the problem why movies are so long that everything almost needs to be explained away. We must let the director have here. their vision, you well, know, that type of which thing. is really bizarre because it feels like franchises love 
prequels. So it's like, wouldn't you want to give folks less answers in the original film if you're going to have, if everything's always going to have 15 prequels so that they could flesh the movie out even further than it was already fleshed out in the first two hour movie? Like, wouldn't you want it to be less informative? Like, I don't, I think it's, it counts against them in that sense. So it's just so strange. I think it's a damn if you, damn if you don't. I think that there are some directors that need to be reined in, but then there's some directors who just need to be let loose. And I think that's the challenge of a good producer is to figure out who do you let cook and then who do you take the utensils away from? You know what I mean? But I think in this instance, as much as I love Tom Holland's work, I mean, I really love a lot of his movies. I think that this was the right thing. It seems like this was the right call because I don't watch this movie and really think, God, something's really missing here. You know, I'm not right. looking for any missing puzzle pieces. Well, I, I always I keep going back to the opening in the sense that all that stuff that from that you know sequence sounds cool, all the cops and robbers stuff. But the fact that it just starts media res, you don't need yes. all you need to know is that Mike Norris is a cop and Brad Dorif is a criminal. That's right. And I think that's why it works. And I, like I said, I'd love to see the scene. I don't need to see it incorporated back into the movie because it just kicks the movie off. Bam, we're going. The credits are going. The chase is happening. I think it works best. Now, what what cracks me up about this movie, though, watching watching the opening sequence again, mm. is it asks so much of you in the first like five minutes of the movie. I mean, <laughs> oh, it, it like, like it if does. you just if you just turn this on, you don't know what you're watching, and it starts off with that sequence. You're gonna you you're, you feel like you're starting halfway through a movie, and then immediately, <laughs> you know, they, and he gets killed. He does the entire you know quote unquote voodoo chant, and then there's the lightning strike, and then he's like in the doll. I mean, it's so absurd right at the beginning, which I think is the reason why this whole franchise works, right? Yep. Because they're able, because it's like, this is, this was never set in a reality that anybody knows. So it, it lends itself to the sequels, obviously, but it really does ask so much of you as a viewer to be like, to just go on the ride. But it also tees it up perfectly because then from then that point on, you're like, right, anything, anything's game. Yeah. You know that the, his soul's in a doll. Like, so yeah, you can, you game. can, you can yeah. then, uh, yeah, anything is game. You can just be like, okay, I'm going to, let myself just believe yeah. what, wherever this takes me. And I think that's great because then you do as, as ludicrous as it gets, as it continues, you, you buy into it. Which yeah, is fun. Echo what you're saying, Mac, it just hooks you in. Yeah. And it, it, there's no must off, no must, no fuss. I mean, it's just bam, here we go. And, and it's also a credit to Brad Dourif. When you think about the all 34 years, except for some of the later sequels, I should say, this is really all you see of him, the actor, you know, and it's and he's giving it his all in that scene where he is trying to get his soul into Chucky. I have to say, oh, so I've I've got to mention this though. So, Holland's cut is around two hours long, and he actually had uh, initial director's approval. He was mm. able to submit his cut the way he wanted to have it out and have test audiences react. However, if test audiences rejected it or if it didn't get enough good scores the producers had the right to cut it. And so that's what they decided to do. And essentially from that point on kept Tom Holland out of the proceedings, David Kirshner, well, David Kirshner at the head. Go ahead, man. Yeah. No, I have a question, but I'm going to bring it up when we talk about Chucky, because okay. I don't know if that, if what we're going to talk about, it was a factor for it failing. I, there were some yeah. voice so, actors yeah. who were not uh, Brad Dourif who did figure into that, but a lot, like I said, a lot of it was just 30 minutes too long. Um, right. But Guess who was brought back into the fold for the first time since he submitted his first draft? Donnie. David Kirshner brought in Don Mancini to give notes to Kirshner what he felt worked and didn't work. And 
the rest is is history. So, you know, when you hear about these nightmarish productions with all these fingers in the pie, it usually ends up being a mess. But Child's Play was released on November 9th, 1988. It's its 35th year anniversary this year. And despite all that, the movie opened at number one at the box office. Ended up grossing $44 million worldwide. Adjusted for inflation today, it's over $106 million. It sat in the top 10 until the end of the year. It was still playing regularly in theaters, like up until like, up until I think it hit home video, like in April. Yeah. The next year. And then it was huge on home video. Yep. Another life. Justin, do you know what it was up against? Oh God! I had to hear that it beat here, out some I, other movie. But if you want me, to pull it up, let me. I have I have the box office open right here. Right. So Child's Play opens at number one. Uh, number two, Ernest Saves Christmas. Wow! <laughs> I just watched that for the first time in so thirty funny. years. A couple number weeks ago. three, Everybody's All American, which I have never heard of that movie. No, have I? But number four, They Live. Wow. Number five, maybe the dingo ate your baby in A Cry in the Dark. Number six, Mystic Pizza. Number seven, The Accused. Eight, Iron Eagle 2. Nine, U2, Rattle and Hum. And another one I've never heard of, number 10, Things Change. Hmm. I thought Iron Eagle 2 was direct-to-video, but I guess not. Wow. Congratulations. They were all like, I think they would maybe play kind of the the shittier theaters in town. (laughs) But still, to be sitting in the top 10, Iron Eagle 2. That's uh, Pretty crazy, yeah. Which is, uh, and uh, I think I have the fourth week, so it is December 9th. This is one month into it. Child's Play sitting at number four, but number one is The Naked Gun. And then you got... Uh, the good old days. Tequila no, Sunrise, Scrooge, Oliver and Company, Land Before Time, Cocoon to Return, The Accused, Ernest Saves Christmas, Mr. Pizza. God, what, what a time. The 80s. And when they were, were making Child's Play and they're writing the Cabbage Patch High, I wonder if they thought, well, you know... Not only will like horror fans want to see this, but this is reaching any adult that's had to deal with the horror of Cabbage Patch Kids and kind of pl- playing with that, like, okay, now I can actually hate this doll for real kind of thing. I wonder if they thought, you know, that tapping into that, it's just kind of funny that it's like the world needed an outlet <laughs> to <laughs> deal with the Cabbage Patch riots and the crisis of the Cabbage Patch Kids. And this was like our way to... This is our way to now say, well, I don't want you to have that doll. That doll is like Chucky and da da da. And we're not going to spend thousand dollars on a doll that might kill us. In well, the, night. the the cabbage patch thing was like you know the national late night punchline. I found this funny uh, picture of Bob Hope and Miss USA entertaining the troops. And uh, Bob Hope's joke is, if you think the guys are fighting over here, you should see them battling for cabbage patch dolls back home. <laughs> oh boy, very good. Rest in peace, Bob Hope. Okay, well, look, I think we've done a pretty damn good job discussing the history of this of this film. But uh, there's an old saying, and that saying is, of course, a true classic never goes out of style. Is this shit? Never mind, child. Jesus, the music scene's gone to hell since I've been dead. That's more like it. And for this section, we're gonna be talking. About the score, and I think there's a couple songs in this movie that we'll be talking about a little bit as well, but uh, Vanderbilt, what do you have for that? So, you know, up front we'll talk about 
Well, we got before we get into the score, I want to talk about the music supervision that was done by David Chackler, who yeah. was a long longtime partner of Tom Holland. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chackler worked on the music for Heavenly Bodies, Police Academy two and three, Thrashin', Elm Street's three and four, Return of the Living Dead two, Kickboxer, Tales from the Crypt, Hanging with the Homeboys, which I don't know if you guys have ever seen Hanging with the Homeboys. Never saw it. Never saw it. Very good. Very good. Uh, part of that early nineties indie thing. Uh, original Gangsters and Fright Night, which mm-hmm. I need to put a plug in for. I did a deep dive into the Fright Night soundtrack, track by track, where uh, I explored the whole album with Chackler. And he kind of let me in on oh, nice. why they picked certain songs. I did that article for Daily Grindhouse. And I did the article essentially because I wanted to find out who the fabulous Fontaines were, who were a band on the Fright Night soundtrack who do one song. So that leads into our first song that I want to discuss. Chucky's animated theme by Mike Piccarillo. Piccarillo was one half of the fabulous Fontaines. Uh, he wow. and Gary Getzman, who would go on to be part of uh, Playtone, Tom Hanks's company, yep. recorded Boppin' Tonight for the soundtrack to Fright Night because they needed just one more needle drop. Wow. That's a good pull there, I have to say. That's pretty good. So, ironically enough, Piccarola would go on to do music for several animated series in the 90s, including Sabrina the Animated Series, The Wacky World of Tex Avery, Trolls, amongst others, and he wrote fifth, wrote and produced 15 of the tunes from That Thing You Do. Wow. wow. So, uh, earworms, basically, is what we're saying here. Yeah, yeah this uh, he's a pro. He, he's yeah. just a pro songwriter. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the animated segment in here. By uh, that, you guys, the sequence where uh, Andy sees the commercial, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, so that animated set was done by Ruby Spears, which was an animated company that did a lot of TV shows that we grew up with Sectars, the 1983 Alvin and Chipmunks, the Centurions, to throw it back, the oh. Police Academy animated series. Yes, I all the Police Academy ties are great here. But even <laughs> more uh, impressive, in 69, uh, Ruby and Spears, they were both sound editors at Hanna-Barbera, later branched into story writing for Space Ghost and Herculoids, another uh, poll. Herculoids. But they pretty much created, they were, ta- ta- they were tasked with developing a mystery-based cartoon series for Saturday mornings ah. and brought us the scariest horror television show of all time, <laughs> Scooby-Doo, Where yes. Are You? Wow, terrifying. Uh, And if you don't know Ruby Spears, you've seen the logo. You've watched a bunch of stuff by them. They're around forever. Uh, They both passed away in 2020. Uh, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears. R.I.P. But thank you for your work. Did you you all notice in the cartoon that the little boy, not not the good guy doll, but the little boy is wearing a bullseye on his shirt? (laughs) No, I didn't notice that. That's pretty great. (laughs) I was like, oh, he is a target. Yeah, that's a good catch. That's a good catch. Now, Vanderbilt, Shackler was supposed to do the score for the movie, right? But he he quit right before it began, I believe. That's what Holland had said. They were kind of in a lurch, from what I remember. Oh, I, I you know, I don't, I didn't, I didn't see anything about yeah. that because I never really knew Shackler as a musician. Yeah, he was he was supposed to be heavily involved, but he left, and so that's why they had to get somebody else to do the score. So I learned in the reign of Chucky, I have to say. Hmm. Very impressive. So let's blow through these uh, pop songs. Uh, you, I always like to try and find some interesting trivia, but this was kind of 
it turned up didn't turn up much. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, you guys it, are pretty good well, trivia already, so I wouldn't be I wouldn't feel that. But that there's bad. a some of the songs. I mean, it's I, I think Chackler had a knack for just picking cool music to be on a soundtrack, and I like the fact that he also. I, I think he's kind of known for doing rock and roll and pop stuff, but then also doing like stuff with hanging with the homeboys and real gangsters that it wasn't just pop and rock that he could, it was just music in general. Like he could do rap and hip hop as well, but we have I'm hanging performed by DB Knight, written by Bob Boyle. Uh, and I have it in my notes. If you want to hear it, I have, you can click that uh, on broad jam. The song is listed as being about dysfunctional relationships and addiction. Mm. And then we have Is It Really Love, performed by Michael Lanning. And this is playing on the radio when Chucky gets the keys at the Dickensian uh, uh, Mental Institution for Children. Uh, Lanning Lanning has an interesting history because he penned jingles for Sizzler, Chevy, and Ham's Beer. And as an actor and singer, he appeared in Wayne's World, but I cannot find out where. Uh, Baywatch, Thunder in Paradise, and Stephen Bochco's Cop Rock. Yeah, wow, I just mentioned Stephen oh, Bochco wow. earlier. Yeah. And he was his band Jiva was also signed to George Harrison's Dark Horse Records. Hmm. Okay, okay. Then we have Grass by Richie Rome and Russ Faith, performed by African Sweet. It's kind of this uh disco pop tune. Uh it was disco by Philly uh Philly White uh Blue Eyed Soul guys. Oh, I wanted to ask What's that? The only song that stood out to me. Where I was like, oh, I want to know what that song is. I know Vanderbilt will figure it out. Is the song that's playing in the car when ah. Morris gets attacked. Well, I'm glad like right you mentioned that. that. Yeah, because that, that stood out to me. That song is called Second Sight, and it's before, performed by David Darling. But I couldn't find much out. He was uh, apparently a cellist who also dabbled in pop music, is as much as I could find out about him. Yeah, like the music... like. The pop music in this one is like so in the background; it's hard to even figure yeah, out. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah there's no real big sequences. At, but the score is by Joe Renzetti. Yeah, and I should say, I'm, somebody else was involved. Shackler, I think, still kind of left the production in terms of finding a composer. I think that's what had happened. So Holland was kind of left in a lurch in that regard. That's what I'm thinking of. But anyway, I go ahead, go ahead. They did a pretty good job because I mean, they get they pull this guy, you know, Oscar winner for the Buddy Holly story, who yes. worked on Carpenter's Elvis movie. The Exterminator, Vice Squad, big fan, uh, big, uh, it must be buddies with uh, Gary Sherman, Chicago Boy, because I guess they did Exterminator, well, that's Glickenhouse, but Vice Squad and Poltergeist 3. And, and Lisa, think, right? if you've ever seen Lisa, Lisa's a pretty good uh, psychological thriller yeah. from the early 90s. They did Basket Case 2 and 3 and Frankenhooker, but we talked about him on our Patreon episode covering Dead and Buried. Yeah. I think right. I stepped on that. I apologize, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, of course. No, I, mean, yes. I must have missed it. But yeah, uh, I, so I tried to watch it last night with kind of paying attention to the score. And it's, I, I found it reminiscent of both Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. Like it's a lot of kind of big screeching noises. And I think it's effective. Yeah. The sting that is consistently used to kind of be like, Chucky's yeah. alive. I, I really love that sting. And I feel like that is, it, I, I, if I heard that randomly, I would know it's child's play. You know? Right. Uh, so I, I love that kind of thing that works in its favor, obviously. Now, I, I'm sorry, I was looking up something else, but did you, did you mention that he worked on Elvis? Yeah, I did. John Carpenter? Okay. Yes, cool, cool, I did. Cool. So he's got, some, uh, yeah. he's got some genre... What do I want to say? Some genre of bona fides. Credentials. Yes. 
Yeah, the score is funny because my favorite part of the score is actually the closing credits. Which is so funny because I think it's the most, like, recognizable. Yeah. And I I've, I always liked that piece of music because I always thought it was kind of sad. Yeah. Like, I always got to walk away from Child's Play a little sad. For as much as for as much fun as this movie can be, there's some real pathos to it. Mm-hmm. And just that final shot of Andy, and I believe Tom Holland mentions it on the director's commentary, that you know the, it ends with the audience saying, oh, Andy's never going to be all right for the rest of his life. And I think that the producers wisely took that under consideration for the next 34 years of, of projects, yeah, too. Yeah, for real. And it was probably a very smart move on their behalf. But um, I think it was Kirshner and Mancini said they respected that Renzetti kind of held back on that until the end credits. Like, he saves yeah. the child choir stuff for the end. Like, you don't hear that throughout the rest of the film. It's a little yeah. um, tubular bells as well, which I'm yes. not sure if that was a deliberate nod to another possession movie in The Exorcist. But it's funny. It's just the the score of this. It, it's not like you're listening to some John Williams composition, you know, where it's so recognizable when you hear it. I think it does a great there's job no of just themes. shutting up the dread. Like, like there's Matt, no chi- there's no child's play theme. I don't yeah. think is yeah, there. It's all like it's all just really effective incidental music mm-hmm. and 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 musical stings that, like I said, like I. Yeah, you can't like hum a theme from Child's Play necessarily, but maybe the credits. But if I heard those those musical stings in a row, I I could probably say, oh, that's Child's Play. You know what I mean? Because I I associate some of that music so well with certain scenes, just like that, just that that the little bit of music that plays when Chucky's burnt head says, "Hi, I'm Chucky. You want to play?" Yeah, that's good stuff. Like it's just creepy moments that like sit in my brain and. It it's tied to those those music stings, which which is cool. It serves the movie, right? I mean, that's the whole point. Yeah, it does a good job, and I, I believe in the remake they do actually reincorporate that closing credit music. I think in the closing really? credits, but we'll talk all really about that. Bizarre. We talk about the Child's Play <laughs> MGM remake. But yeah, I I think an effective score and adds again to that point I said about there being a lot of class behind the scenes. Like this is obvious. I I think that Child's Play was trying to create a new Freddy Krueger. But I yeah. feel like it's got, you know, it's definitely got, they got a little bit more budget and a little bit more, like, I don't want, there's more professionals behind, like, I think Nightmare on Elm Street was a lot of, like, kind of guys just, like, first times getting jobs. Like, there's some real kind of oomph behind Child's Play that elevates it. I think in summation, it's like, you know, Fred, if Freddy built New Line Cinema, but MGM built Chucky. You know, I yeah. think that's that's the best way to look at it in that regard. Well, look, great tunes, great score. Thanks to everybody involved, Renzetti and Shackler. But what can I say? Here's Chucky. A good guy. I knew it. I knew you'd get me one. Show me how he works, okay? Hi, I'm Andy. What's your name? Hi, I'm Chucky. And I'm your friend to the end. Heidi ho <laughs> So we got to begin here, obviously. Chucky is voiced by and played by uh, Brad Dourif. Where do we begin with Brad Dourif? Anybody have a famous or favorite Brad Dourif performance before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of his career? Personally, I mean, I've loved Brad Dourif forever, but if it's not Child's Play, it's the doc on Deadwood. Oh yeah, yeah. Great. he is so good on that show. But if you're talking pre Child's Play, mm. I don't know. 
Vanderbilt. Well, it's got to be Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, Cuckoo's Nest for me. Nominated for Best Supporting Actor for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, as a matter of fact. It's a, yeah. it's a tragic movie, but his role specifically stands out as being really just sad. And a total 180 from who he is as Chucky <laughs> and Child's yeah, sure. Play. Total 180. And I disturbed, for- but yeah. I forgot he's in Blue Velvet. He's great. Here's the thing. He also was in Blue Velvet and Dune, which were two David Lynch movies, and kind of oh, these yeah. minor roles. Heaven's but Gate. he's just become a great character actor over the last 40 to 50 years when you think about it. And post-Chucky, he's good in Critters 4. So when, <laughs> I we, still... when we finally get to the Critters series here. Oh, um, we'll get there. Season 20. He's also obviously in Alien Resurrection. Speaking of Part 4s, also... The Zodiac Killer. What? No, the Gemini Killer. Excuse me. I apologize for all the victims out there. The, the Gemini Killer and The Exorcist 3. You've, you've known him. He's uh, the Lord of the Rings films. He's been all over the place. Really great actor. Specifically great in this. And I want to say this right off the bat. I think we lament some of the, the later Elm Street entries for, for getting too goofy. And I've said inverse a lot here, but I think that the reason that the Child's Play series endures, for me at least, is because it does get kind of goofier. And because Brad Dourif is so funny as Chucky. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. And here's why, go. Justin. I can put yeah. the thing. I, I, I was thinking about this last night, especially in terms of Freddy Krueger, because this is MGMUA trying to kickstart their wisecracking. Mm-hmm. Horror villain franchise, and I think it was because now Freddie was always kind of funny. Like yes. Freddie always did crack jokes. That's that's a misnomer that he doesn't. It wasn't until the second one or the third one. Like he he does have a he, he had like a sick sense of humor to character. Yeah. yeah, but it definitely gets more overtly sillier mm-hmm. as it goes on. With the character of Charles Lee Ray, you kind of because you kind of meet him as a human, yeah. you kind of see who he is. I believe he. He's not necessarily telling jokes. It's more that he's just a scumbag. Yeah, exactly. But also, like, his performance in the first, like, two minutes of the movie is so heightened and intense <laughs> because of what's happening. I mean, he gets shot, and then he's just, like, even just... I'm dying. Like, his first, like, essentially his first line when he's like, no, don't leave me, God, no. It's it's so, like, ah, it punches. So, yeah, when you have Chucky, you you... Anything he says, you're like, oh yeah, I believe it because because it's 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 already three steps down from that opening <laughs> sequence. You know I, I mean? think it's be- because you meet him as a real person that you buy yeah. that he would he would crack these kinds of jokes too. Yeah, and also I think it's just inherently silly that a basically a my buddy doll would be running around killing people. So you already have that, so you're not going to take it too seriously. Like you would kind of take Freddy Krueger for as absurd of the as the idea of a a killer killing you in your dreams is there's still a seriousness to that background that is creepy. Oh, and I think there's a seriousness to the tone of that first movie that you don't get in child's play. Like there is kind of a tongue in cheek quality. I think thanks to a lot of that's thanks to Tom Holland. I think. Yeah. The difference is, and obviously they don't go that route in nightmare with the sexual end of things, but he's still a child killer. He's, you have a guy that's killing children and then somehow it becomes MTV Freddy. I, I still don't know how that works, but it worked. It, it, it eventually <laughs> happened. The eighties. But with Child's Play, I mean, he yes, he's he's the the Lakeshore Strangler, but 
not that they these not that older people deserve it or anything, but because he's just you you, you expect him to be this scummy, shitty guy, and you kind of laugh at the situation that he's in and laugh and it, it, it find it more funny. It's easier to find it more funny when it's not like kids being killed, I guess. But then yeah. the whole movie is about him trying to kill Andy. So yeah. <laughs> it is kind of a backward thing. It's yeah. goofy, you know, it's just, I, it's but just... I want to talk about him as Lake Shore Stranger for a minute because yeah. I, I do like the costume design a lot in this movie. I think they get mm-hmm. a lot of things right. And I really like the costume design on, uh, Charles Lee Ray in this, but he looks more like a gangster than a serial killer. I know that's the so thing about flashy. It. It's like a thief. He looks like a thief. He doesn't look yeah. like he's out there killing people. Well, that's him. And uh, so here's the interesting background story about him being Chucky at all is that so he he did play Charles Lee Ray, but for various reasons because like I said the production took a long time to really get going and get moving. That initially the filmmakers used two other people's voices to do Chucky. And first up was John Franklin, who plays um, Isaac in Children of the Corn, the, the little kid priest. Oh, the, um, a Blue Island native. Oh, are you kidding me? No joke. Wow. You gotta get, we gotta get John Franklin over here. So, but, so they took his voice and they messed with it a little bit electronically. And test audiences actually thought it was too funny. And it didn't work because it was too funny. And like, it wasn't just, oh, this is kind of disturbing and creepy funny. It was just a, like a goof. Like it was just, it, it wasn't working. Funny totally enough, though, it didn't match. Exactly. It, it totally, the dissonance was there. But if you watch the good guys commercial in the movie, that voice of giant Chucky is John Franklin. They kept that in there. They had not changed that to Brad Dorff's voice or anything like that. So, and so I was watching it and I thought, oh, this is, I could see how this would work. It's too bad they had to add the goofy robotic, you know, bah, 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 over it, whatever it was. Just didn't match. Second, Jessica Walters, uh, then famous for Play Misty for me. Uh, of course, she would become the matriarch on Arrested Development years later. They used her voice as Chucky. Again, just didn't quite match well. But because of all this, these you know, test screenings not going well and some production issues, enough time passed where Brad Dorf was able to come back and do the voice. So how about that? I would love to get. I would love to get some clips of Franklin and Walter doing it. <laughs> Absolutely, kind of like how you want. We want for years to find like clips of Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly. It's not maybe that that level of anticipation, but I would love to see that eventually. Yeah, I'd um, love to hear the Jessica Walters tracks. The, just to see, I just wonder what that yeah. sounded like. It would probably. I think they also said that it was in, inspired by having Mercedes McCambridge do the voice of Reagan, kind of in that spirit of her of the voice, kind of sound a little bit elderly, not quite making sense. But it, it ultimately didn't make sense in the in a negative way. I think is what you would say. Yeah, and that was because of Play Misty for me, right? Like, um, yeah, that's what she was yeah. most famous for at that point. I feel like it is one of those things. I was watching some behind the scenes stuff. Where they were just like, as soon as Brad Dorff started, he was like right racing up and down the hall so that he could have the heightened, mm-hmm. you know, breathy just st- for Chucky. And he was just really giving it his all as the voice actor for this. And I think have to have someone that committed that's going to go the extra mile to get that performance across. And I think that's just so cool that. I just, it's, it's amazing. Like when you, 
you know, having two different voice actors do this and it just doesn't work. And then you have one person come in and it just clicks and it's just yeah. like, wow. And it was the guy that they had from the beginning, you know, the yeah. original. Sometimes line, so. it was meant to be. I think it was meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I'll tell you right now, I still have not watched the Child's Play uh, remake, reboot, whatever you want to call it from a couple of years ago that MGM did because God bless rights. But of course, I'll watch it for this podcast. You finally got me to watch it. I'll watch it because we're literally doing a season on Child's Play. But a, a major reason was is, is it's Chucky to me is as it's as important for Brad Dourif to do Chucky for me as it is for Freddy Krueger to be played by Robert England. Like I just, it's very hard for me to imagine Chucky, even by film Twitter's Lord and King Mark Hamill. I mean, even with him doing it, it just. I don't know. Well, I'm looking forward to discovering if, if I can come around on that, but we'll see what happens. I don't know. Somebody else played Chucky in this movie too, though. And he actually played Chucky in a few movies, and that was Ed Gale. Ed Gale was a veteran actor around this time, a little person. He played Howard the Duck and the great <laughs> Howard the Duck. It's funny yeah. when you like, see footage of him, like Sans makeup, when he's like yeah. doing the test. You can kind of see Howard the Duck I know, in his face. Kind of- Running around the same way too. It's 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 kind of wild when you know that watching the movie, and so yeah. Well, Tom I had Holland, some of this too. Yeah, sorry. Oh, do you want to say this was special effects Mac part of it, or do you want to? No, I can just talk about it now a little yeah, bit. Yeah, he uh, he was also in Phantasm Two, Spaceballs. He played Station in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. <laughs> oh, uh, so he 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 had a really really wild career doing a lot of stuff, uh, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool. I think he passed away a few years ago too, from like yeah. But he too. was working right up to the to the end, yeah. Which is uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, just let's keep rolling. I, if, yeah, I, sure. if there's something that I found, I'll I'll jump in. But uh, and we can talk about the other aspect of that. You know, um, yeah. Get I mean, special effects, but yeah. Well, Holland did specifically with the first movie though is that even the scenes you see with with Chucky, the animatronic Chucky talking and walking, and moving around, Holland shot most of those scenes uh, with Gale as well, doing the same actions. And what he ended up doing was kind of just deciding what worked best, Chucky the animatronic doll or Chucky played by Ed Gale. And so I think it works really well in this movie. Well, I think that there's, yeah, the editing and the camera trickery there is the way they kind of seamlessly blend the puppetry, the actor. And I think, yeah, those are the two big things, the puppetry and the actor. Yeah, Yeah, I I think something that Ed Gale was doing was looking at the puppetry of it mm-hmm. and going, okay, there's limitations for the puppetry, right? There's only mm-hmm. so many ways that Chucky can move as a puppet and these things. And I'm going to mimic that yep. so that there is a seamlessness to it when you get to those scenes. And, and I, you kind of see it as a scene towards the end when he's after he's burnt and he's stalking down the hall, not the puppet, but Ed Gale in the outfit and it's one shot, very brief, where he's where Andy's on the floor, and you see him walking towards him slowly. And the way he's walking really is kind of how the puppet's moving, mm. and it's really unnerving because you start right as you start to believe like this thing is really alive in there that something's moving in there. It's a person. Yeah. Uh, it cuts, and so it, it, I think it really works in those sequences where you. Ed Gale's in the in the costume, yeah. I mean, they really do go get away from that. Even by the time the second one happens, Ed Gale was involved, but John Lafia and him ultimately did not get along very well. And we'll save that for February's episode on Child's Play Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also, though, this is pretty incredible, another double for Ch- for Chucky in one scene, and it's 
somebody who pushes Maggie out the window. You know who plays Chucky in that scene? And there is there is uh, there are stills of it. I think it's Alex Vincent's sister. It's Alex Vincent's sister Ashley, and it's very creepy. It's, it's this cute little girl, but she's got the full Chucky wardrobe on and this gross big red wig. And you know she's about to push Maggie out the window. It's out there. We'll post some of this stuff, I'm sure, on our socials over the next month or so. Mac? Yeah, I also found that there was another uncredited uh, actor, uh, Hunter Marks. There was a two-year-old oh. that did some of the sequences where they where you see Chucky's feet like uh, running behind furniture and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. And there's a lot of scenes of that in the movie, too. Yeah. So look, it takes a village to to raise children sometimes, and it takes a village to create Chucky, apparently. But this is off the off the top of my head here, but I mean, when you think about the big horror heavies that still endure, I think Chucky I'm not saying Child's Play is better than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but in terms of the legacy of the character, I think Chucky has kind of supplanted Pinhead, Leatherface. I, I still think that Chucky will probably always be behind the Freddies and Michael Myers and Jasons and of the world. Do you, pers- would you agree with me on that? I mean, personality goes a long way. It does. And, it's and that's the thing. That's why I think he'll always be, I think Chucky may have even like has surpassed Jason and Michael yeah. Myers at this point. And it's because he's got that voice and it's, it's incredible. It's yeah. Brad Dorf. And I, I said that personality, Mac, what about you? Yeah, no, I mean, Think about it, and it is the it is the Brad Dorif connect too, you know, like hugely because it's still him doing the voice, and it'll I think mm-hmm. it'll always be him doing the voice up until the end, you know. It's that weird thing where it's it's just a voice, so you you would think that if like let's say God forbid Brad Dorif passed away, like well we can get another act because Chucky looks always looks the same. It's the doll. We can just do anything. Anybody can voice Chucky and make it sound like Chucky, mm, but no. I don't know. You know, it's one of those weird things where, I, it, you know, it, it, for me, it's like hearing the new Kermit voice, right? I was going to say the, the Henson thing, yeah. Where it's like, it still doesn't quite sound, it doesn't sound right to me. I don't know. <laughs> you know, so it's one of those things like, are you that married to that performance? And I think we are. But like you said, also, there's all, Child's Play has had something come out pretty consistently. There's been like some lulls. Mm-hmm. But it has just never, it's never quite gone away for a long, long, long time where you could just totally reboot and forget about the past. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of been in the subconscious. And I think that it deals hugely with just like uh, merchandise, right? Mm. Especially over the last 10, 15, 20 years, Chucky dolls, right? And all that kind of stuff like that. That's very much in the zeitgeist of horror and still around and people have it. Even if there's not a movie, there's like still stuff like that floating around and being pushed. And so you're still seeing it in stores all the time. And so I don't know what it is, but it, it yeah, it's just kind of transcended. I think it's the Dorif and ultimately the, the Dorif Mancini Kirshner trifecta that is essential uh, for this series, and um, you know, again, we'll talk about that as the as the year goes on for sure. But we talked a lot about Chucky, the iconic Chucky, the great Brad Dourif. But look, there are some other uh, good guys and Glendas that we've got to get to. Tiff. <laughs> Glenn. Guess again, Daddy. 
Glenda? That's my name. Don't you wear it out. Oh, shit. All right, so for the good guys and Glenda's section, we're going to be talking about the cast of this motion picture. We got to start off with Karen Barclay, played by Catherine Hicks. Now, Catherine Hicks, I remembered her from Star Trek IV, Bad Boy Chum. She's done a lot of soap opera work. And she's the mom in Seventh Heaven from WB in the 90s. I used to watch a lot of that back in the old days. Did you, you, you guys used to watch Seventh Heaven? I did. I have to tell you, I wasn't even, we weren't even like a Christian household, but it was just a WB <laughs> show. You know what I mean? We watched it. I watched it. I watched it. It is, the Seventh Heaven is like, like Christian rock, right? Like, hey, this is pretty okay. Oh, wait a minute. There's some weird messaging wait, here that I'm not wait, what's like. what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how it plays now, but I think it was kind of progressive in some ways, you know, where they were kind of doing the whole love everybody. Listen, this isn't a Seventh Heaven podcast. God helps no. all, literally. Stra- also kind of interesting, I never really put this together, but Stephen Collins and Catherine Hicks, both in Star Trek. That's right. And of course, Obviously, Stephen Collins. we're not. Yeah, not <laughs> yeah we're not going to go Another horror story. Hey. Catherine Hicks, Stone Cold Fox. No wonder... Uh, Kevin Yeager was so smitten with her. Let's talk about say, now. Yeah, let's talk about it. Matt, you have the story. I've got a story. If you want, you have a story, Mac, or I got a little story behind that. Oh, if you have a story, go for it. I was just going to mention. I I did not realize that they were together. Well, but Catherine <laughs> still, Hicks, I know <laughs> Catherine Hicks. Very religious upbringing, and she. By the time they made Child's Play, I think she was in her thirties. She had not been married yet. Didn't have any kids, and um, she was shooting shooting overseas. And she she went to this beautiful. Church, I can't remember what country it is now. God, don't hold it against me. Watch out for those one-star reviews. Uh, Seventh Heaven Church. <laughs> Seventh Heaven Church. She made a prayer and basically said, you know, when I get back, I, I pray that I find, you know, my husband and soon. And she starts making Child's Play and special effects guru who we'll talk about later, Kevin Yeager is there. And long story short... They get married, have a kid, and have been married for 33 years. So congratulations to the Child's Play cast and crew. Special effects guys always did well with the ladies, but I think Kevin Yeager is the most, like, traditionally handsome. He's a good-looking guy. He's a good-looking guy. Okay, anyway, listen, Karen Barkley, we talked earlier about how important it was for this movie to have, like, really strong cast and crew at the forefront. And she is really good in this movie. I mean, the relationship that she builds, the actor builds with with Alex Vincent, who plays Andy, is essential for this movie's success. I mean, I, I think she does a great job, and I think the smartest thing they did was also not make her some, you know, uptight me first ad executive who my kid hates. I think that the dynamic and the love between her and Andy uh, resonates in the following films that she's not even involved in. Like it's that strong for me. What do you think about uh, about her? Her performance, Vanderbilt. Oh, I agree with you 100%. I, there's nothing I can really add to that except for the fact that I, and I think that she takes it so seriously. Yeah. And it kind of does, you know, you mentioned the exorcist earlier. It does kind of call back to that Chris McNeil vibe where why would she believe any of this? But then when she has to, she has to come to terms with that. Mm hmm. Of course, of course, this doll is trying to murder my son because it's the only, at this point, the only logical explanation for it. And I think you really, uh, she really sells that. And I mean, the moment, and it's one of my, I think it's my favorite moment in the whole movie, the whole scene with the batteries. That is absolutely my, that is 
probably the best scare in the movie. It's oh. not a kill, but I think mm. that's the best scare. And the batteries fall out of that packaging. You buy it. You're just a, you're just right there with her because you know she she knows, and it is such a good moment. Yeah. It's 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 perfect script writing. It's perfect direction. It's perfect acting. Yeah, yep. like every yeah. everything about that moment. Great and a great, like you said, the great scare. Yeah, it's funny because obviously that gag doesn't work if they kept the original title of the script, which was batteries not included. <laughs> then they would have been like, "Well, we never got the." Yeah, she is great in this. She's got. It's funny because she only has, I think, one scene or maybe two scenes with Maggie. She's great chemistry there. Obviously, yeah. the chemistry with with Chris Sarandon is great as the movie goes on. But something I learned that was really important with this movie specifically is how it's the escalation of the belief. At first, we know something's going on. Then Andy knows something's going on. Then Karen knows something's going on. And then Mike... It just goes on all the way to the very end when then now Mike has to give us his partner. And I think that's a really clever way of doing it. And you also keep the suspense going with the whole and the, the crucial line at the end of, well, yeah, who's going to believe us? Who's going to believe me? And it's just kind of the absolute unbelievability of of the existence of the, of any possible existence of Chucky. But anyway, Catherine Hicks, I think she's been missed a lot and the, and the movies have come and gone. But who knows? Maybe she will show up again on the Chucky TV series, Mac. Oh, yeah, maybe. I was just going to throw out, if you want to watch a good Catherine Hicks movie, The Razor's Edge with Bill Murray. Oh, yeah. And Denil Melliott, she plays the fiancé, and and she's really good in it. Uh, that I, I don't know. I really like that movie. The Razor's Edge, but, uh, um, it's gonna... I believe we saw an autographed poster of that at uh, the Murray Brothers we restaurant. Did. <laughs> we did. I think we did. And it's it, if you haven't seen it, I, I'd say check it out. It's a remake of a of a, a film, and I think it's based on possibly based on a novel, too, but... It's a strange vehicle for Bill Murray, but I th- what, what was it at the time that he did? He, he did was coming some... off of Ghostbusters, so he would want to prove his dramatic. Right, his he dramatic wanted roots, to do but, Razor's uh... Edge, but they were like, "Well, you've got to do X to do that." Yeah, you know, and so. But anyways, yeah, Catherine Hicks is in that, and she's really good. Um, and that was Teresa four, year, four years prior to Child's Play. So. Anyway, great, uh, great job! One of one of the great horror moms of of this of our cup. Okay, let's think about horror moms real quick off the top of my head. Obviously, Pamela Voorhees, essential. Elm Street, no. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, Nan- Nancy's mom. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying like, <laughs> but, listen, you know, if we're being honest, you're talking about great like performances. Ashley and I, my them. partner at Rocker Island, kind of laugh. We, we just started coming up with this bit when we watched the original Halloween one mm. night, how Michael Myers' mom just kind of puts her hands in her pockets. Like, when what are you doing out here? When, <laughs> trying to figure it out. <laughs> she, when he's standing there with the knife, just like, oh, Michael at it again. Anyway, one of the best uh, moms, I, I would say, in, in any of these movies that we've discussed so far. Uh, next up, somebody who didn't even have to audition because he had worked previously with Tom Holland, playing Detective Mike Norris, the great Chris Sarandon. I have a question right off the bat. Yeah. Aside from performance. Is Chris Sarandon wearing the same white sweater and trench coat that he wears in Fright Night? It's not the same trench coat. I can it's tell you right now. It's not the same right trench now. coat? The trench coat, he, does, he has two trench coats in okay. Fright Night. One's leather and one is cotton. Maybe it's a little darker, too, in Fright Night. He's Gray, got more of that yeah. traditional copper, like, uh, tan one in this one. And he's got the brown leather jacket. With the trench coat in Fright Night, it's, it's mainly buttoned up the entire time. 
And in this movie, it's never buttoned up. It's always open. But that white sweater, I was thinking, hmm, is this the same well, white you know, sweater? It cracked me up because watching it again, I was like, the last time we see Sarandon in Fright Night, he's getting blown back in an explosion against the wall. And the first time we see him in this, he's getting <laughs> blown back in an explosion against the, the toys. Two. And the, the, you know, it's kind of a funny, kind of a funny, like, well, we just left left off in Fright Night. You know, you're men- you, you mentioned the, the sweater, and I don't, I don't, I don't think it's the same. It might be. But again, kudos to the costume designer on this because I really th- like. I think the style of sweater that he's wearing in this one is kind of a it, it, it's Irish, mm. and uh, Mike Norris is a very Irish Chicago cop name. Yeah, yeah. And I read or I, I listened to a commentary somewhere that uh, Saranda was very specific. He went out and hung out with Chicago police. And went on a couple runs with them on some of the, you know, some of the more rough neighborhoods here in town. And I never noticed it before until somebody pointed out, but he does do a pretty good Chicago accent. I think so, too. I, now, I mean, there's a great... There's I've a great never line, heard one before, say. before this movie. I, I don't know what people are talking about. <laughs> yeah, when they, you wouldn't know anything thing. about that. Nothing. But I do think it is funny. It was that lie I was trying to figure out when they're like, who... <laughs> who who killed who killed Maggie Andy? And then Andy goes, Chucky. And they cut to Sir Andy goes, the doll? And just like the, the accent doll? is just perfect. It's, the, it's like the it's flattened A's. He yes. he like he really nailed it. And I heard that he was very important for him to try and do that. And Chris, I know you're out there listening. Nice job. Well, I would I, I would kill to have Chris Sarandon on the on the podcast. Oh, I mean man, yeah. Okay, but so besides this, if you look at his career, I mentioned Dog Day Afternoon earlier. He does this in, in like 1974, I think the movie came out, 73, 74. Uh, he gets nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Good, great stage career in the 70s. Does a really controversial movie, and I mean unpleasant, called Lipstick, that came out in the late 70s, early 80s with the, the Hemingway sisters, Margot and... and um, Pretty good movie, though. Honestly, yeah, it's it's Margo and Mariel, unpleasant. And then obviously he does child, he does Fright Night, which looks. I don't know how we haven't covered Fright Night yet on this podcast, but we will. By God. by God, somebody out there, let's let's do it. And mm-hmm. then he does Child's Play, but in between, class another classic villain, Princess Princess Bride. He's he's Prince Humperdinck. I forget that. I forget about him yeah, in that one. Yeah, the year before. So, that's too. the first thing I saw him in, obviously. But I mean, hell of a career. Maybe even most famous of all. Uh, married Susan, who took the name Sarandon. They were married. That's where Susan <laughs> Sarandon's name is from. Oh, I don't know who she I was. This. I think it was with uh, our friend and colleague Katie Rife. I was trying. To, we were trying to figure out if they were brother and sister, or if they were married. Because hmm? I, I think I was conflating them with the Roberts. Oh no! Yeah, they were married. That's that's yeah. what she kept the name because she became a more popular actor. She kept the name for. Oh, he's good reasons. in the Sentinel too. Yeah, I was just about to say if you didn't mention that, that was that was right after Lipstick. He's very good in that as well. Oh, and one of my favorite bits of stunt casting as Reverend Current in Tailsner Kip's Bordello of Blood. I gotta tell you, side note here. Speaking of stuff that Tom Holland worked on, he worked on the Tailsner Crypt series. I don't think Bordello of Blood is that bad. I love it. I, I watched it again a couple of years ago and I thought it was pretty fun. I no, it's not nearly as good as Demon Knight for me, but I, I don't know. I, it worked for me. I think I, I, I know, know there's a lot Miller's of funny in that. I don't know. It's there's a lot funny. of horror stories about Dennis Miller on that set because he just simply didn't want to do it. Yeah, but I think he it seems works. a real character. Oh, it works for that, oh, especially Dennis Miller back then. I don't know. Check it out. You let us know what you think about it. I, I don't also, think it's that bad at all. 
Continuing the voice work, apparently in 2017, he voiced Count Dracula on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I, I gotta watch another vamp, another vampire. I've gotta, I've gotta oh. watch that episode. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that he does the speaking voice for Jack Skellington and Nightmare Before yes. Christmas. He's That's had right. a quietly great career when you really think about it. I mean, and no scandals. Like no. I don't know much yeah. about him. I wasn't even sure if he was married to Susan. Yeah, he was. But and for those of you out there who, are, who would be interested in this, uh, he is doing the audio book. For Tom Holland's Fright Night Origins book that just came out. So I that'll be a lot of fun to yeah, hear. Totally go listen to that. Yeah, that'll totally. Fun. As for the movie itself, again, love him in this movie. It's a total 180 from his performance as Jerry Dandridge in, in, in Fright Night. You, you kind of love him right away in this movie it, for different reasons, you know. And something I got to say, though. Do you know what building that the Barclays live in? The Brewster building. The Brewster oh. building. <laughs> Charlie oh. Brewster. Fright Night. I didn't even think about that. That is funny. That is good. Another great scene <laughs> that he's got. I, I just love his incredulity about it all. Not only when he says, the doll? With, with Andy. That is. But, with, but that monologue when Karen runs up to him in the street and says, it's oh, real, yeah. it's real. Chucky's real. And he just goes, Good, Good night, night, Mrs. Barkley. <laughs> he says this to her several times. I the movie, know. I this is well because that's the thing. Like, there's no way you believe this was going on. And it's kind uh, of interesting, I think, in their dynamic that is there a budding romance there, or is there not? I I think it's alluded to in future entries, from what I remember. But I think that there is a budding. But here's the thing: there's definitely strong chemistry there, I believe, but it doesn't. This movie doesn't end with a big smack on the lips. No, it's not because it's not about that. It's not about that at all. And I think the but I love how it doesn't go down that path, that right? Yeah, yeah. It feels like it, it should, and then it lean it on that. Doesn't. Yeah. Something else that Hicks and Sarandon sell, and obviously Vincent to an extent. When you think about the finale, it takes place in a relatively small Chicago apartment room, you know. But they make it like Hicks and Sarandon are out there like this is the 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 the, the ending. The, the big climax of a major fucking movie with a big action scene. <laughs> I mean, it's a big deal on their faces. Even though we know, I'm like in my Chicago apartment right now, it's decently sized, but I'm like, how the hell would I shoot any suspense action or horror in my apartment? But they're, they I know that do a great job with it. Catherine Hicks was like, I, I, to get, to get to the level of heightened, scared, a feeling that she would pretend that there were snakes <laughs> wherever mm. she was supposed to be yeah. seeing, like under the couch and stuff like that. Ugh, <laughs> like, that would do the trick for me. I don't like, I'm like, the oh, fuck I never really thought it. about that, but that would sk- that would give me that like I don't want to look under this couch kind of thing. But yeah, they're giving 110, percent which is just fantastic, I, and it absolutely lends itself to it because you believe because they believe, you know, and I think that that is huge. Bring back Karen and Mike. For the Chucky show, I'd be so great. Oh, bring him back. Ugh. That'd um, be awesome. Okay, well, next up is somebody that a really underrated performance, in my opinion, is Alex Vincent as Andy. Yeah. And listen to this poor kid, the, the, the run that he has to go through in this movie alone, let alone the movies and show that to follow. So he guilts his mom into getting him a good guy doll. Right. Which leads to his mom's best friend dying and everything that follows. Also, 
Chucky claims to have been sent down from heaven by Andy's dead father. I mean, that's a son of a bitch. (laughs) That That is so grim. Manipulative as hell. And you know, Charles Lee Ray was cracking up when he came up with that, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, apparently there's there's oh. more footage of that, right? Where where yep. you see him talking to, walking Chucky around his room, telling him about, you know, the what pictures in the dad. room and stuff, and then that's how he gets the idea. Yeah. Well, there's another there's another cut scene. I can't remember if it was filmed. I think it was filmed. But it was definitely in, in, in one of Holland's scripts. Is uh, I think it's Karen's telling Mike about how Andy's father died, and Andy was in the car with him, and it was a car accident. And he went to go save his dad, but he couldn't, you know, the, the car was on fire and couldn't get him out. I think, Oof. I do think it's smart to cut that out because at that point, it's now it's becoming a heavy, heavy movie. Yeah. And, and it's awesome. sad enough to know his dad's dead. Yeah. This line is kind of this brutally funny almost, but I, that's just grim. And there is I some think. heavy stuff in there, like that scene where Andy's crying yeah. that Chucky's going to come get him. And I'm sure you guys heard the same story that Tom Holland was sitting there. Yeah. Telling him, like, now imagine if your parents died. Like, really trying to make him sad. We can talk about that now because that was a big point of contention with some of the producers and some people that were on set is that is how Holland got that performance out of Vincent, which, look, it works because you believe that kid That's is in That's one of the best scenes in the movie. Uh, he And it's really... Jarring, yeah. I mean, if that's how he got the performance out well, of him, he was him, saying things like, it, you, know, you know, your parents yeah. are getting divorced. Uh, you're going to cost us a day of shooting, this and that. Obviously, look, there are other ways to go about directing. And nowadays, my God, this he would have been fired from the movie probably at this point. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it works. Even Alex Vincent had, had looks back on it, does not have any PTSD from it. He gets along great with Tom Holland, and it worked. I mean, it got a performance out of him. And uh, I want to talk about Andy's dad for a minute because my personal yeah. pet theory is that he was an architect or some kind of building designer. Because there's, the, the yeah. there's a big drafting table in the back with a bunch of artwork surrounding you, it. You brought this up, Farabelle. It's like everybody in, in, in every '80s movie was an, like it worked an ad exec. A, an ad exec. Well, <laughs> I said always they're, they're always well. an ad exec because you never actually have to see them do their job. But I was also watching maybe this it, movie uh, "Bad Influence" with James Spader. I've seen that. And he works, it's so nondescript. He definitely works at a place that deals with numbers, but they never really say what he does. Like, <laughs> hey, you got the big account. It's like, of course he's got the big account, you know? It doesn't really well, matter who what is the it, the guy, is. Uh, the guy who did Birdemic, uh, uh, James Wynn. Like, mm. all the numbers in his movies are round numbers. Like, Oh, just because? If you guys, like, <laughs> oh, we just made $1,000 on this on this big sale. That we because if, if, if you if you made seven hundred and seventy three dollars, it doesn't sound good. But <laughs> an extra two hundred, oh my god, what a deal, you know? Well, you know, she was supposed to be an ad exec originally, right? exactly. So that's right. Which an, is ad, an ad exec, sorry, an ad exec. That's my an shorthand for. I think, ad, 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 I think he had a pretty good job, and the insurance settlement was good, and that's how she can afford that pretty nice Northside apartment. apartment. Yeah, pretty good apartment. But speaking to Alex Vincent again, really quick, the special effects guys were concerned initially about whether he was going to be scared of the doll. Mm-hmm. But they all had like brilliant things to say about him as a child actor. And and they showed him all the mechanics of Chucky and all the puppeteers and all this stuff. And, and they were like, you know, they really tried their best to make it a, a situation where he wasn't going to be traumatized. And he wasn't. And they said yeah. that he was just like, they didn't bother him and that 
he just he knew I and mean, you know when Chucky when Chuck when they said cut he was lifeless you know he it wasn't was real same. so he was never scared on set of the of he's the a cute he's a cute kid too like it, yeah and on top of that Mac um, Ed Gain oh my god not Ed Gain Ed Gain <laughs> Ed Gain <laughs> if Ed Gain was on this movie oh another god. Chicago uh, no I'm just kidding that's no but that's, Ed Gale said Gain. that when he was running around with the, the Chucky mask on you know doing all the the, the, the non animatronic work, he would be sure that when whenever Holland yelled cut, he would take off his mask and talk to Andy or to Alex Vincent to make sure that everything was good to go. So I think they handled it pretty well, um, all things considered. But uh, yeah, I think the opening, that scene where he's making cereal for his mom is so sad now. It's just sad when you know where, where the characters end up going. There's a know? lot of sadness in it's this It's a sad movie. time. But it adds to the intensity. That's what it works too is this isn't just a bunch of dumb teens you know, getting tracked down by Chucky. Like, there's a seriousness to, like, this, this this widow who's trying to take care of her child, you know? It's, it's that element of class it. that elevates this. Uh, as much yeah. as I love the Friday the 13th films and even yeah. the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, it just puts a different touch. It's, okay. And it's well, interesting with, you know, in talking about Holland because Fright Night is such a fun movie. Yeah. All the way through. And this one, I think, is fun, but has such pathos to it. Yeah, it does. And it, and like I said, it had even more pathos that they cut out of it. So he had a totally different vision for this, I think, initially. Okay, here's my question for the two of you. You know I'm the cynic of them all. So how long would it take, Mac, I'll ask you this question. How long would it take you to believe that Chucky <laughs> was, in fact, real? What would it take? I mean, would you have to see the doll in action, or would you eventually believe somebody? I think it is the Karen Barclay batteries scene, right? Like that would mm. frighten me. I, I don't know if I would a hundred percent believe, but I would. That would frighten me enough to start doubting myself mm. and my beliefs, because you know, kids say the darndest things, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would suspect my own child of being capable of like pushing Maggie out the window and all that kind of stuff or whatever. But I think that I would find it really hard to believe. I would think that something was maybe off or something was wrong because, because you know, if, if you are Karen and here's this child who witnessed his father's death, although that wasn't, and you know, they didn't say that necessarily in this cut of the movie, but is, has dealt with this and is trying to cope and coming up with a, an imaginary best friend or the, now Chucky talking to him and doing all these things. And, you know, kids do this stuff, right? They mm-hmm. take dolls, take inanimate objects in their home and say, oh, it, it was them, it wasn't me. So that's not like something new, you know what I mean? So it is kind of like where do you draw that line? Where do you start to believe your child's telling the truth on this level? Uh, that's really difficult. I think you and I, Justin, would be killed immediately in most of these movies because we wouldn't believe <laughs> anything that right. was going on and telling and not only that, telling everybody, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, we're all good here now. But that, you're the doctor in the facility, and you're like, no, no, be, no, 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 no. Be here's a, here's a Do- Doctor Bog- Doctor Bogdanovich, got a got a Peter Bogdanovich, <laughs> yeah, got a vibe to him. But I will say, I Ask something God. I do kind of believe in in my life, like in like terms of like, I don't know, problem solving, figuring things out is that I like that old, what is it? I think it's Sherlock Holmes, right? When you eliminate the possible, then the impossible is the only possibility. 
kind of thing. Yeah. Something like and, that. And like, to Max's point about like believing your child could push your friend out the window, I, I think there would have to be a point where I'd have to say, there's got to be something to this. I don't know when it well, would listen, happen. It would definitely maybe be like that batteries moment. I think that there's a version of this movie where you don't have the opening and it just opens with Andy at the kitchen right. table. And you include all that stuff about his trauma with his father and all of this other psychological background. And then the reveal is, oh, actually, the doll is the killer. Like, there is a, there is a version of that movie that exists where you could have done that, but they, they didn't go that direction. You kind it's of a different know, movie. It's even it's, seen early on. That's when, more of a mystery, a more of a psychological thriller. That's Anthony Hopkins yeah. and magic. Is it real? Yeah, is it not? because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think that quite works, because even if you have the reveal, then you have to reveal the voodoo aspect so late in the game that yeah. it just becomes silly and doesn't work. You know, I like right. it, like, right off the bat, you know that the doll yeah. Yeah. Is real, and then so you're in the audience, despite the fact that you might not believe it. Telling why won't you just listen to this kid? Why won't you, Mike? Why won't you just listen to Karen? And but then you think about it, you're like, well, why the fuck would I believe that? That's asinine. Exactly. Well, you need you need to believe you need to believe Andy from the from the get go because then it's just the Babadook where you hate the child the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I, That's right. I mean, you know, say what you will about the film, but where you're just you don't. You're just like, oh, this is too much. I can't. Like, I know you're lying, kid. Like, yeah. you're you're where you're more on the side of the parents, but you need to make him that sympathetic. Like, Andy's so innocent, and you love him from the from, right from when he's making the breakfast. Right, you just love him from like the first moment, and I think that that is plays hugely into the rest of the film. Obviously, yeah. so yeah. And and Alex Vincent would go on to be in Child's Play two. Then he was recast in Child's Play three. But he did, he would return years about oh, twenty years later, in the most recent Child's Play entries. We'll be talking about him a lot more later on this year. But a great, mm-hmm. I think, great child performance, especially in this film. Great yeah. job. We can run through the next few, the rest of the cast here. We got Dinah Manoff as as Maggie. Dinah, famous for being in Greece. Oh, my favorite, Marty. Yeah, Marty. Well, you know, Bill Butler, the cinematographer, also did the cinematography for Grease. Well, there you go. The Grease connection. Wasn't Grease MGM? Am I right about that? Or was it Paramount? Paramount. Paramount, actually. I, I apologize, Paramount. Paramount. I'm, please, God. Although, that's right, because Paramount Plus has got Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies coming soon, I saw. It's going to be gonna be a lot of fun. I did a couple Wait, news really, stories on that. Is that really that. happening? Yeah. yeah. It's really, uh, there's a trailer out there and everything, yeah. We'll see. Uh, Dynamanoff, great. I think, uh, terrific performance. From yeah. her, uh, that is that is the best friend that you want. She's great, and she's also another tragic role in Ordinary People, Robert Redford film a few years earlier. Before oh, that, yeah. she was also was she on Empty Nest? Yes, Empty Nest sitcom for years actually. and Soap. Yeah, yeah, she was. She had a good little run there too, Dinah uh, Manoff. So, next up, this is crazy. Jack Santos, who is Mike's partner, played by Tommy Swerdlow. Tommy Swerdlow. Shortly after this movie, became a screenwriter. Um, I think he wrote Cool Runnings. But yes, this really. is the wildest of them all. Are you ready for this? Yeah. He, he shares co-story credit with one other person <laughs> and co-writing credit with one other person for a movie that is doing gangbusters right now, critically and commercially. There's no way you would have ever guessed this. And it, I get goosebumps when I found out. Megan? Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. <laughs> I was close. Isn't that insane? You're kidding. No. 
Wizard Boots, oh, wow. the last wish, might I add, is getting a higher critic score than Avatar Way of the Water. So congratulations to so, Tommy Swerdlow. The Tommy, let me talk about Tommy Swerdlow for a minute because mm. he might be the most Chicago thing mm. in this movie. I, Backs me up in the movie, too. He's he, in, I uh, believe, Howard the Duck and Spaceballs. Uh, he's in space, a troop leader in Spaceballs. He uh, was on uh, Sledgehammer, which is kind of a cult show that people Great really show. like from the late 80s. Uh, he's in Real Genius. But I think from his costuming, I love that black jacket with the white flex that he has. The mustache. Uh, and the mustache. and he Because he, you can tell he kind of dresses a little bit more cool mm-hmm. than uh, mm-hmm. Mike. So he's probably a little bit younger, a little bit more. He's the hothead. He may be the Riggs. To Mike <laughs> Norris's Murtaugh, if you will. But he's a Chicago guy. I guess he grew up here, or he oh. spent time here, and I, 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 he brings that vibe to the movie. I think yeah. that another uh, instance of pitch perfect casting. And but again, I would be the the Jack Santos of our group. It would take. I don't care if I saw Chucky burned, <laughs> blown away, and you guys saying, "I promise you, it's him." I wouldn't believe it was happening until he started choking me through that vent. I mean, that's that's where I would be in the situation. Somebody else. I'm picturing me and Mac and Rothman all laying on the floor of some Chicago apartment and Justin like bouncing the head. Yep, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be like, okay, sounds guys. like a new t- sounds like a new T-shirt for the season, right? Oh yeah, and then Chucky's right behind me. That'd be pretty funny. <laughs> Somebody didn't get enough credit here. My boy, well, Doctor Ardmore, who has got a little bit more of a sympathetic role in some of the deleted scenes. By the way, he's the the doctor who is taking care of Andy in the middle of the movie. Played by Jack Colvin. I remember Jack Colvin growing up. He was a regular on the Incredible Hulk TV series. Oh, yeah. He was the journalist that's tracking down Banner yeah. in every episode. Every, every time he's just about to find him, you know, Banner gets away and goes to another location. But, yeah, that's Jack Colvin. They do a good job here with two things. Especially, there's some stuff that was cut that would have helped this out a little bit more. But Dr. Ardmore is actually a decent guy. He's not like some evil doctor trying to, you know, kill Andy or right. something like that. Like, he just really thinks that Andy is sick and is trying to do something about it. And why wouldn't he? And why wouldn't you? Yeah. But the next part here is, I think, here's a scene that should have been kept in the movie. And it is, Mac, your namesake, Dr. Death. John, Dr. Death Bishop, played by Raymond Oliver. There's actually a scene, if you watch the movie, it's a little jarring when you see him kind of just walking around the apartment. Right before that... He has done some free work for a, a neighborhood couple and their child who's been sick and, and like refuses payment and does all this stuff. It's supposed to paint a picture that he is actually much more sympathetic. And you get that in the movie, the way he acts towards Chucky and saying that you're an abomination and you twisted right. my words. But I think they could have even gone one step further to show, I, look, even though his name is Dr. Death, this is not an anointed Yeah, Justin, I want to to talk to you about that because something I noticed last night, having known now about all those deleted scenes, and you kind of get the vibe when I was a kid that he was just another one of Charles Lee Ray's criminal buddies. Exactly, yeah. That's, yeah, until you see that sequence where, like you said, Justin, where he's like, no, 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 you're you're a perversion of, you know, this, and you, you would think that. They actually paint, absolutely paint that picture, but then you realize, oh, no, there's you know there's more to this guy. So I, I think when he starts to you know terrorize him and break his legs and all that, I, I, you, yeah. you, you feel for him in that moment. Yeah. But I always forget that he's not just another criminal, another mm-hmm. guy that you know it's it is someone that he's manipulated that he's used to learn this power. Mac, or whatever. 
you and Justin have lived in uh, Chicago for a while. Where did you learn your voodoo? That's a great point. Well, um, you know, like I said, a lot of these were shot a little further south of, of downtown, but I would try to go to the local Barnes and Nobles by DePaul and pick up oh, some. No. Uh, well, it, it, I, I went mean, to the Borders um, that used to be oh, yeah. near the Riviera Theater. That's right. Um, that's right. No, the real, I'll tell you, the real trick is you got to go to Second City. <laughs> I got to take improv, improv and voodoo classes at Second City. You know what they say Gosh. there um, when they when they bring up voodoo, and you say, "Do you believe in it?" Do you know what the answer is? Yes, and <laughs> and then you move along. Speaking of moving along, Eddie Caputo, great name, first of all, great <laughs> name, more or less a wordless role for ne- Neil Giantoli, who plays Another Charles A. Ray's <laughs> partner. <laughs> What's a better name, Neil Giantoli or Eddie Caputo? I've got the name of all names when we get special effects, just so oh. you know. All right, we'll see. But I just saw Neil Giantoli recently on the Losers Club because we rewatched Shawshank Redemption. He is one of the buddies of oh, yeah. uh, Red's group. But more importantly, he is the uh, movie bootlegger on Seinfeld. <laughs> you know, so That's right. When Jerry's like, oh, you got a lot, you got a nice feedback there. And he goes, I was going to share it. It was for everybody. <laughs> Very uh, funny comedic role. Uh, he's also another Chicago movie. Shows up in Waterworld Next of Kin with oh, Patrick Swayze. Waterworld. Um, what if Waterworld was a Chicago film? Oh, his, it might be. Mac, do we, you don't to, to we don't know. We don't know where his, that water's at. Mac, did you have anything to add about his death in the special effects section? If you do, I don't want to step on that. I don't, so go okay, ahead. Cool. Yeah. There were some explosions in this movie, specifically the Playland Toys building that explodes. But then mm. his house uh, downtown explodes. They were going to destroy that house anyway. But apparently the explosion was so strong, it blew out windows in people's houses like blocks or two away. Well, and apparently the, the company had to settle with the people living in those houses. Somebody else did books. that on another movie that scared. we talked about. I think it was Waterworld. <laughs> right. No! Next of Ken? No, we talked about it on the show. I feel like... That I sounds familiar. Oh, I, it might it have been was, an episode uh, Justin wasn't on. I, I can't think. The new blood or something um, like that? I think it happened in Uncle Sam. Oh, yeah. the um... <sighs> It's going to kill me. Well, anyway. we'll think about it later on. Yeah. If, if anybody else can go track yeah. down our Uncle Sam episode, please let us know what you think about it. <laughs> and if we ever did it. William Lustig's Uncle Sam, right? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. There we go. So there's a cast and crew. So let's talk about... This is going to be an interesting answer here. But we got to go to this next category to get that answer. And uh, presto, you're dead. They never learn. So, who's next? Okay, best kill. It's challenging because at Mac, like you, I think the best scene is when Karen finds out that Chucky's alive. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, Mac, what's what do you think the best kill is in this movie? I, for me, it's Doctor Death. Oh yeah, with the legs and the arms. Yeah, breaking. which is funny because it's just well, you know, I guess Chucky does stab him, stab him, but uh, it is unnerving when those legs and arm break mm. it is brutal and it, it, i think because it is also a scene that's doubling down on the idea of, of the film in a way that's like there's no turning back yeah like we have gone full on i mean if if if, if the doll if him becoming the doll wasn't enough we have become we have gone full 
lean into full tilt into that aspect of the, of, of, uh, the film. And I think it, it, it's like, if that scene also isn't there, I don't know if like the rest of the franchise works, you know, I think mm-hmm. it's like, it kind of paves the way. It's like, you can do anything you want yeah. in these movies going forward, go for it. So, and I just think it's really effective and it's a character you really, you meet and then immediately feel bad for, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, that doesn't always work, but you don't want that to happen to him. You want him to somehow get the comeuppance on, on, the, on Chucky. But yeah, that, that to me really, really, really works. Vanderbilt, right. what about you? Well, I think I have to echo what Max said. And it's also an important scene in a film because it's the first time you really get to meet Chucky the doll. Yeah. Yep. So you have that hanging over it. So even if like, you know, you don't like. I think Don Mancini even said in one of the commentaries about how that's what sells that scene. Even though, like, you're like, why are we doing a voodoo doll all of a sudden in this movie about a, <laughs> about a killer doll? A doll is using a doll to kill this guy. I think that's what makes that scene memorable because really, this movie has a low body count, right? Like, who gets it? Maggie, Doctor Death, Caputo, 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 the Doctor, and the Doctor. That's right. It. Yeah, that's so it. Four people, and the doctor's well, death is Charles well, Lee Ray. Charles Lee Ray. <laughs> the doctor's <laughs> death is gruesome. But as I was watching it last night, and this is what happens when you watch a movie too many times, you start questioning the logic. Had Chucky just let the doctor sedate Andy? Yeah, just he stay could in the have corner. Gotten <laughs> right into the transferred yeah. soul right then and there, because uh. uh, the doctor one just seems like out of nowhere. That feels like. At some point in the script process, they needed to, we need one more death here. Well, again, there was yeah. that character was around a little bit longer in those deleted scenes, a little bit more uh, introspection into Andy's psyche. Uh, so I'm but just going to agree with Mac on this one. It's the it's the Doctor Death scene like that. I mean, the Maggie sequence is great. Mm. Like, I think as far but, as tension uh, goes, but as far as visuals and you know introducing the Chucky character, I think you can't go wrong with that one. I do hear both of you saying, but I do think the Maggie one for me, and it's because of what you said, Vanderbilt. It's the it's the tension build up to at the point in the movie, the way it's shot, and I think that stunt is great when she goes flying out that window. Yeah, it's, that's that's real stunt work right there too. And it's uh, interesting though because I don't know where else we discussed this. So uh, as on the show, I always try to find out who designed the posters for these movies. Oh yeah, yeah, and that's like I always remembered the video box art, which is Chucky. In all of his glory yep. towards the end of the movie. But what I remember of the marketing of this movie when it was coming out is they kind of kept the doll under wraps. You see his eyes. And you see yeah. the Barkley building. And the, po- yeah, and the poster. Building. But even in the commercials, you never really saw the Chucky. doll. Definitely not in full Chucky mode. And I, I got to say, I'm not a big fan of the theatrical poster. I think the VHS the- cover is... That's the one I remember. It's the one. Yeah, with the, 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 the poster. And... Like, why is that? Why is the bill? Is is it a haunted building movie? Like, why are his eyes? It, none of it makes any sense. So, yeah. I tweeted. Well, the body's I, I falling. Yeah, <laughs> and the body fall. Like, it, it looks like it's a combination of artwork and photograph. Mm. So it's very charming. So, Tom Holland, or at least whoever runs Tom Holland's social media, got back to me as far as who designed the poster. And he just agreed with another guy in the comments who said it was probably just some MGMUA yeah, exactly. guy in the basement. So You know, it probably was. It was probably an ad executive. <laughs> How about that? Oh, You're all maybe, over the place. Maybe it was Karen Barkley herself. 
Oh, God. In the original cut. <laughs> Sitting there on the, the, the drafting table. Yeah. All right, well, Max is going to go into a lot of detail in our next section here. and it's, we, We've had this running joke on the podcast. You know, every year we try to switch up the categories. I mean, this year we went back to Steve Christie's bulletin board, but that's just for fun. But we have the we would do that great graphics bit with Freddy's Dead for the great graphics section for the special yeah. effects section. But this year it's season six. We want to change it up a little bit. The name of this, the new name of this category is Great Graphics. <laughs> what do you know? I beat my score. <laughs> Come on, you didn't think we were gonna change. Change the name. What if we just call it Special Effects Land or something lame like that? No, no, no. Great graphics. Mac has got a lot of information about this. Sometimes we do these movies and, you know, it's it's Ghostface stabbing somebody, you know. But this movie had a lot of special effects done throughout to make it really work. And it wasn't always as easy as you may think it was. Mac, tell us about that. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, we've talked about him before, but Kevin Yeager who's the designer and executor of the Chucky doll. Um, you had Howard Berger, the shop supervisor, Richard O'Helmer as a special effects supervisor. Now going back to Kevin though, he cut his teeth working on a few unknown films like Friday the 13th and final <laughs> chapter nightmare on Elm street two and three. If you remember those, uh, he also did <laughs> trick or treat. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's not, the new trick or treat—that is the the Ridge trick or treat, which Charles is Martin fun. Smith yeah. trick or treat, uh, and the Hidden, which we hmm. talked about recently as well. Get this: Kevin Yeager was twenty-four. Jesus, <laughs> and not only coming off of the Nightmare films, but he was also recommended by Rick Baker. So hmm. you got that going for you. Yeah, he he worked heavily on the animatronics, which was a fairly fairly brand new at the time. He and his team were really building these things from the ground up. But again, like Vanderbilt said, you know, you did have a lot of people that kind of knew what they were doing. And he was coming off these other films where you're working at a fast pace, trying to do these things for the first time. They were lucky enough to have uh, good hands on the project and good puppeteers. They had multiple Chucky puppeteers and Chucky puppets for different performances. Now, they had they had up to nine puppeteers working on Chucky, depending which version of the puppet they were using like the face alone had three or four per people working the eyes and then the brows and the cheeks and the mouth separately. One of those puppeteers was, and get ready for it. This is the name I was talking about. Brock Winkless. <laughs> that can't be that a real a name. great fucking name. That's a great name. Multiple people working on it to control the movements. Oh, and Brock Winkless also worked on Mac and Me. A few <laughs> versions. Buried the lead. <laughs> <laughs> I know. A few. There was uh, so there was a few different versions of Chucky, right? So, um, in addition to, well, first I'll talk about the Force Perspective stuff, right? Because we already talked about Ed Gale and Alex yeah. Vince, Alex Vincent's sister. So they built sets that were thirty percent larger than life, so awesome. that when Ed Gale was on set in those moments, you you believe it's. He's the size of Chucky, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think he was three foot something in real life. And uh, so the force perspective sets, that's, you know, it, it's amazing to think about when they did, when they used to do yeah. these things, right? Because like now they would never, they would yeah. never go out of their way to build sets that large unless they really wanted the feel or that was particular to, you know, whatever it was. Like I would say they did a lot of that stuff with Lord of the Rings while blending it with new, you know, with green screen and whatnot. But yeah, so that that's pretty 
pretty crazy. And 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 those scenes specifically is when you know Ed Gale's uh, in the fireplace when he comes down when he gets burnt. Like I said earlier, when he's walking towards Andy in the hall, and just uh, some other sequences like that, like in the in the home. But yeah, you had three other, I think, Chucky dolls or puppets that were used primarily in the film. You had a bicycle Chucky, which is essentially a completely wired version uh, that moves his whole body for body shot sequences. You know, like when he first meets Doctor Death and he's standing on the platform. I, you had uh, what they called rod Chucky, which was used essentially for waist up shots where he's slowly moving toward, yeah, you know, that scene where he's uh, slowly moving towards the camera after being burnt and it's from the waist up and it's clearly the, the, the puppet, the doll puppet and not mm. Ed Gale. Oh. And then you had a, a wholly independent Chucky where they had a drill motor inside which essentially just to achieve like the kicking and screaming, right? The so whenever they called him the, the Makita Chucky, <laughs> there yeah, was a Makita so... <laughs> drill uh, battery. <laughs> yeah. So whenever you had, you know, Chucky either being burnt and you needed him just be kicking and screaming and throwing a tantrum, essentially that those shots were used. I have to also imagine it's that scene when Catherine's, when, when Karen's being attacked for the first time, yeah, too. you see his legs moving, and it's yeah. and sh- it's a long shot, and she's kind of just like holding the doll, and his legs and stuff are kicking and whatnot. A lot of firsts in terms of building this and using the animatronic technology, essentially, f- to build the doll and to make it do things that they had not been able to previously do. There was some interviews with Kevin Yeager. I watched a, a, something. It was like a behind the scenes documentary on YouTube that uh, he was talking about they would do a lot of things on the fly and do a lot of improvisation. And sometimes Tom Holland would be there and they would do something and he'd be like, Oh, do that again. You know, <laughs> and like, they'd be like, yeah. uh, okay. But also just one of those things where they were stumbling into some of the genius behind it as they went. And that's gotta be fun, but also terrifying as he, as he said in the, in the doc, it was just, you know, because because you don't know if it's going to work or not, and the, unless until you're on on the set with the actors doing that stuff. And I think that it was there is something to having a tangible puppet or mock up or you know doll or something there on set when you're doing these films, especially back then. You know, it wasn't like play to the tennis ball. It was yeah, like, yeah. here, at least we have this, or this is working in this way. And so you're actually acting with an actual puppet, an actual doll that's there, and you're seeing it having these reactions and these things. And I think it's a little easier for the actor to, obviously, play with that. And I think it also comes down to the editing and the directing, right? Because it's 1987, 88 when they're making this movie. It's not as, it hasn't been as perfected or as close to perfection as you can get with an animatronic back then. So I think that the key was not letting it linger too long on Chucky. Cause if you watch him talking compared to future entries, it's not as uh, down to a, a science. Right. As it and is. it was very, they're getting very specific with that. And yeah, cause it was kind of the first time they were able to really do that because it was, it was becoming very big, right. With the like animatronics, like the, the term, right. Was created essentially by Disney and because they were doing all the stuff with the rides uh, with, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean and stuff like that. <laughs> the Hall of Presidents. Um, 
Yeah, the Hall of Presidents. And so it was like, it was like, oh, we're going to take this new technology now and like use it for film for these purposes. And so figuring out how the mouth was going to move, you know, it's one thing to be on a ride or one thing to be a Hall of Presidents where you're sitting back like, you know, a ton of feet away from the actual animatronic. So it doesn't need to sync up exactly. But when you're shooting on film and you're, it's a close up, you know, you've got to make it, you've got to believe it to some extent. So there was a lot of attention to detail being paid there. Yeah. And there was something else I read. Well, two things. One was, I mean, when, when Chucky would move, you could hear like the gears shifting. It was really loud. So basically every time you saw Chucky moving or talking, it was all ADR and, you know, sound effects put in afterwards because it just wouldn't, it wouldn't too distracting basically. Yeah. And second, if you watch the movie, this is, they really, they ditched this after the first movie. This is something that Mancini wasn't a big fan of, I think is that as the movie progresses, oh, he's, yes. and the longer and longer he's in the, he's in the, the, the doll, the doll becomes m- more human looking. So if you watch it, he's got like a bit of a receding hairline by the end of the movie and everything. I never noticed that until this watch. Cause I, it's true. Like he looks a little bit more ragged yep. towards the end of it. Yeah. But yeah, he's got like real eyebrows on him mm-hmm. and stuff. And even the eyeball, I never put it together when the the head is sitting there burnt. It looks like a real eyeball, not yeah. a toy eyeball. Like a toy blue. Yeah, yeah. It, it's very subtle. But when you see the heads lined up next to each other, like if you just Google that. <laughs> it's really apparent, but they do it so slowly over the course of the film that you, and you're just kind of sitting there believing, Oh, this is more and more because he is becoming human. And that's something that I, I wish that they did hold. And we'll talk about it in the sequels, but it's something I wish that they really leaned into more in the sequels. And maybe I'm just misremembering, but no, they don't, no, like they they, don't do much with the, don't cause do it was a lot. It was a lot to do with the effects. And yeah. uh, you mentioned the receding hairline. That was the model that they called the Jack Nicholson Chucky. Oh, I bet. I, I can see it. <laughs> I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. You know, I wanted to talk. Uh, we talked about special effects. I think yeah. there's a great moment that is a, because we talked a lot about Brad Dorf earlier, that is a perfect combination of puppetry and acting. And it's the scene right before Andy lights him on fire. Yeah, like when Brad Darcy, like, but Andy, you know, we're friends to the end. Remember, I think it's just a great melding of what the puppetry and because you do believe him in that moment. Yeah. Well, I, I I think that that is kind of a hint at something I wish we had maybe seen a little more of. If we're going to get nitpicky, I kind of wish we did see some scenes where we see Chucky being full on talking. Chucky, hey, I'm here. Your father sent me. Yeah. And being nice to Andy so that we believe that at the beginning, at least why, why he was duped into, into kind of protecting right. Chucky or not saying, Oh, Chucky, you know, da, 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 and trying Chucky. to be helpful Chucky. to Chucky. Because that delivery um, is him reverting back to how he sounded initially right, to Andy. Right. right? Which yeah. is kind of also kind of does work in that way where you're like, Ooh, creepy. Like this is probably how he got him. You yep. know, like he's trying to be like that. Oh, hey, Andy. Well, a lot of those Ugh. serial killers were, Manipulate able to get some yeah. of their victims, <laughs> yeah. you know. That's a whole other episode. Okay. Do you think that do you think that the uh fucking Charles E. Ray and uh, Eddie Caputo knew the guys from Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? <laughs> Probably so. That's all going oh, on in I, Chicago at the is. same time. I did want to mention I, I came across in doing some of my research, I came across um Megan Navarro wrote a really good piece on Bloody Disgusting. Oh yeah. About guest of the pod. 
yeah, that that went into um, some of that special effects stuff. So check that out. Well, I do have a question for our next category, but before that, there is one more special effect I liked a lot. It's when uh, Karen discovers that there's no batteries in Chucky, and she drops them. The way they did that effect of him rolling under the couch is they just built like a, a little mini <laughs> set that was at a tilt. So when she dropped it, it just naturally rolled. So it looks like he's he himself is rolling under the couch, but it just dropped and rolled because of the tilt. I, little things like that. Little things it. like that. That is why I like doing episodes on older movies. Yeah. Because it was, it's the same thing when we were kids. Like, the how did they do that? Because now if Child's Play was made today, it would all just be done with a computer. Yeah, that's true. But you know what they say. You just can't keep a good guy down. All right, so we're returning to this good old category from years past. Could he have survived? Do you believe at the end of this movie that Chucky has survived? Dismissing all the sequels that we know happened in the TV show, Mike Vanderbilt. At the end of this movie, do you think Chucky is dead? It is a movie about a killer doll utilizing <laughs> voodoo. Of course he's coming back. Mac. I believe that he was truly dead because Dr. Death tells them how to kill. <laughs> so straightforward. As, as we all know, Dr. Death. Dr. Death um, tells, tells them how to kill Chucky. It says that you have to, you know, you have to shoot him in the heart. Yeah, yeah. Shoot him in the heart. They think that's human about him and they do just that. So I, I, there really is no reason to believe at that point that except if you've ever seen any horror movie ever, <laughs> you know, no, no one's ever dead. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, what happens. No one's ever really truly gone. Right. Not until you put them in the, the wood chipper. <laughs> if you, if you, like if you still Halloween believe ends. in the, if you still believe and ha- hold them in your heart, no one's ever truly gone. So, um, I, I putting on my, just my normal is Chucky dead hat for this category. If I'm just watching this movie, I'm, mm-hmm. and, I, and yep. they're following, they're following the rules of the movie. Chucky's dead. I don't see how they could bring him back. I don't understand. I don't know how they make that work, but obviously we see how they do that. I think I would say he's dead and I'm more wondering what's going to happen with Andy. Here's that final freeze frame on Andy. It's kind of like the, the Tommy Jarvis freeze frame from final chapter. Maybe not as intense. <laughs> it's pretty intense though, in, a different, in a different way though. Pretty, uh, the, the Tommy yeah. one is suggesting, I think that straight up suggests that he is going to become a murderer where I think yeah. Andy's is just that he's just Screwed. never going to be able to get past this. Exactly. Right. And that's a different route, right? If they had done that, where the next film was actually Andy Him Chucky becoming Chucky. Yeah. Like, all right, well, this has been a great episode so far, but uh, what can I say? It's time to... Uh... Now park this piece of shit. Okay. It's time. How do we want to do our, our ratings? Do we want to do five good guy dolls? Is that easy enough? Am I, am I'm, I try, I'm, I'm trying to think if obvious? there's anything else more clever voodoo dolls? than that. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's the winner. When we say like, good guy hammers, nah, <laughs> I don't know. Just good guy dolls in general. How about jeans? Because he gets jeans at the beginning. <laughs> five jeans. How, five no, you know what jeans? we do? We do. We do. How many? How many inches did she take up the jeans? Right. <laughs> oh, that's. Right. <laughs> I think it's good. She was so concerned. I think it's going to be okay. 
we do it by the, the stories in the Brewster building. So if it's out of seven, it's like, oh, well, we got 1.4. No, no, we're not. <laughs> let's just do good guy dolls. Okay, how about that? Let's just do it. Okay. So, Mac, kick this off. How many good guy dolls out of five would you give Child's Play? I think this gets, uh, I think it's still really, really effective. I've watched this a few times over the last couple months. Again, it is the one that really got me into it. I think it is totally different than the rest of the series. Only slightly, though. It still really holds up. I still find a lot of those moments really terrifying. It stands the test of time in that sense. I think Brad Dorf is fantastic, and you believe Chucky is alive because of that performance. I think this is a solid flick. I, I think I'm going to give it four and a half. Good guy dolls. Good guy dolls. Yeah, yeah, four That'd and be a half. Fun. Because I, I, you know, there's a reason that this spawned a franchise, right? It's just wildly popular. I think it's an absolute staple. You know, there's a reason we're covering it. <laughs> For this season, you know, I think, you know, Chucky is right up there with Freddy and Jason and, and you know, Ghostface and, and Michael Myers. And it's absolutely become a, a staple horror icon mm-hmm. and uh, and worldwide, too, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Vanderbilt, what about you? Child's Play is probably the best horror picture of the post-Freddy Krueger 80s. And I think there's a lot of factors why that is behind and in front of the camera. There's some serious class to the production. Cinematographer Bill Butler, director Tom Holland, who has an impic- he has uh, he brings a particular right right exact touch to Child's Play. He brings some real pathos and genuinely terrifying moments to what is inherently a silly concept from an albeit sharp script from Don Mancini, dealing with that primal fear of toys coming to life. It's essentially a big-budget Charles Bam picture, and there's a lot of films in an era to try to bring us, quote-unquote, the new Freddy. But Chucky was the one who was iconic right off the bat. And I think that's yeah. thanks to the perfect combination of puppet acting by Kevin Yeager and that distinctive voice of Brad Dorif. Uh Possibly the last great, uh, you know, because the next one doesn't come until 1990, the last great horror franchise of the 80s. Five stars. All right, five out of five good guy dolls. Out of five, five out, of, yes, five out of five good dolls. Love this movie. I think it's a terrific entry. When you think about the Child's Play series, they become horror movies and horror comedies, and then sometimes just comedies. This is the only horror thriller of the franchise, I would say, and I think it works very well. I think it's also aged very well. We talk a lot about how the special effects have held up and the practicality of it all. It's just it's just really impressive as the years go on. There's nothing really dated about it like you would get. Even if this came out in 2000, how bad the CGI would look if they attempted to go down that road, you know? I still think the effects look pretty good today. And that's because, as I always say, can't be tangibility. And they've got plenty of tangible stuff in this movie as well. I mean, it's everything you guys have said. It's, it's iconic. Brad Dourif's voice, the animatronics, and the professionalism and the experience of the leads helping to guide young Alex Vincent as a giving a children's performance as, as Andy. Uh, I don't think it's quite to the highs of movies we've covered like Halloween, Elm street or the evil dead, but I would have it on the same plane as the original Friday 13th and scream. And I would give this four good guy dolls out of five solid entry. I can't believe it's, 35 years old 
this year. Well, we did it. One episode down. Good job, everybody. I want to give a special shout-out. See, I'm, I'm making sure I give shouts this year. We gave a shout-out to the most at the beginning of the episode for all the songs that have been provided over the years. Got to thank May Schultz for editing all of these eps, listening to all of us go on our tangents. Uh, <laughs> we wouldn't be able to put these out without her. It's a lot of patience. Thanks a lot, May. We know that you're listening right now. And uh, look, we got a lot more movies and shows to cover this year in addition to Child's Play. Believe it or not, we're going to be covering the new Evil Dead movie, allegedly, this year, Evil Dead Rise. In March, we got Scream 6 coming out. Going to be a lot of fun. Mike, anything to plug? Uh, Just uh, Windy City Double Feature Picture Show and Cheap Tracks are back for our new seasons. So uh, go check those out. Busiest guy on podcasting, Mike Vanderbilt. Mac, what else do we have coming up? Let me put you on the spot Yeah, for Halloween this year. <laughs> I'm excited for the rental this month. We're going to be covering the 1978 classic Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah. So um, make sure you see the original before listening to our episode, because I'm sure we're going to be talking about that a lot in tandem. But yeah, thrilled to be on that episode, and that'll wrap up our month, which is really nice. Yeah, and be sure you um, go over to patreon.com backslash Halloweenies pod to check out that what was sure to be a great episode about a great movie. But I think we forgot to go over what the last line's gonna be every episode, folks. But Mike and Mac, hope you can keep up with me when I say that uh, you know, we we hope that you join us next time, but sadly for now. This, this is the is end. the end. My friend. friend. Hi, everybody. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.